Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Thursday, February 15th, right now. In Fulton County, there is a trial going on, or motions are being heard. They're in the courtroom, but that doesn't make it a trial. Motions are being heard on whether or not uh, Fawny Willis should be forced to separate herself from the charges she has brought against Donald Trump in Fulton County, the election interference charges. Uh, She has been accused of having an improper relationship with somebody who she hired to be a prosecutor in that case. They are hearing arguments on this now, of course, uh, Donald Trump's lawyers would like nothing more than to get rid of Fawny Willis because uh, if she has to step away, that means her entire office steps away. So what does that mean for these charges against him? Well, that's a very, very, very good question. Um, she was not originally expected to testify, but just moments before uh, they decided to take a recess that they are in now, she made it quite clear that she was ready to testify. And so everybody was like, well, okay, all right then. Let's take a brief recess, and then when we come back, you can uh, take the stand. Legal experts are um, questioning this move. It is a bold move, certainly. Um, But, you know, whenever you agree to take the stand... You open yourself up to cross-examination. So um, it can be very helpful. It can be very damaging. Clearly, she feels very confident. There was one legal expert that I was listening to yesterday who said that they thought, maybe it wasn't yesterday, earlier in the week, they thought that the wisest thing that she could do would be to step back from the case uh, to basically sort of recuse herself. If she had done that, it would have obviously eliminated her from this case altogether, but her office would have been allowed to continue the case. And they said, you know, that that would be in the person's judgment, the smart move. Because if she is found to have been in conflict of interest, she has to step back, but she takes her whole office with her. This is an all or nothing uh, motion here. And she could have, if she felt, and maybe she didn't, and maybe that's why she didn't do it, if she felt there was another lawyer in her office that was capable of continuing this case and bringing it home for uh, a victory, she could have said, you know what, I'm too much of a distraction right now. I'm stepping back from this. And then it wouldn't have mattered whether or not she was found to have had an inappropriate relationship. Because the case would still stand and still move forward. But she decided not to do that. So um, we're playing for all the marbles here, kids. And um, this is big. 
So um, this is a really important case to keep an eye on. And we shall do so. We were um, reporting on that shooting at the uh, Super Bowl parade in Kansas City. We were, I was telling you about that as we were getting the information. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting and when we were getting the first reports that very quickly police had two people in custody. When a mass shooter decides to take out a crowd, they usually do something like that from a position of hiding, and then they try to get away. And I thought it was very interesting that they had two people in custody. And I was wondering if it was actually something that was meant to be a terrorist attack or whether it was one of those instances where there's a large group of people and a fight breaks out and shots are fired. Turns out it looks like the second of those, the latter of those, is exactly what happened. Police are now saying that there was a group of people who apparently were at least loosely together and an argument broke out and um, and then the guns came out. One person... One person um, has has died in that. Um, nearly two dozen people were wounded to various degrees of injury. And um, but right now, police are saying it was a personal dispute. So uh, whether or not things fall apart in Georgia Donald Trump is going to be in court next month. No, don't get your hopes up. This isn't the Jack Smith thing in D.C. We're still waiting for the Supreme Court to decide whether they want to derail justice in in that instance, whether they want to allow Donald Trump to delay, delay, delay and delay till this um, Jack Smith January 6th related trial takes place. We're still waiting on that ruling. But the original, the first, remember the first indictment? Do you remember back that far? Alvin Bragg in New York? Um, You probably need a little bit of a refresher because there have been so many indictments. Alvin Bragg in New York uh, brought a case against Donald Trump that he was paying hush money to keep affairs quiet. As he was running for president, this is the one where uh, Michael Cohen got snagged. And, you know, it's a lot of people think of this in terms of Stormy Daniels because she was not the only one, but she was one person um, who received a big check uh, to basically shut up and not say anything about the fact that um the two of them had sex. I can't remember if Melania, I, I don't think Melania was still pregnant. I think it was right after she had given birth to Barron. But, you know, Stormy Daniels isn't the only one. There was that other young woman, Karen, um, who uh, had a actually longer relationship with Trump all throughout um, his marriage to Melania. Uh, she also was um, the beneficiary of a, of a check. But, of course, um, he didn't want any connection, so um, he went through intermediaries. You know, Michael Cohen went to jail for doing illegal things for him and lying for him. And Michael Cohen ain't lying anymore. So the hush 
money payment trial. It's important that you keep these separated. Do you understand that? There's the Georgia election interference. There's the D.C. January 6th. There is the um, Florida mishandling of classified documents. And there is the New York hush money. Got that? Okay. We're going to have to put together a bingo card here. So um, next month, March 25th, March 25th, Donald, Cor- Donald Trump is scheduled to be in a New York courtroom for this case. You may wonder why we're just, uh, since this was the first indictment, why we are just getting this date now. Alvin Bragg acknowledged that of all the indictments Donald Trump is facing, state and federal, that his case probably was the least of them, was the smallest of them, shall we say. Oh, and that this is don't confuse this with the New York fraud, because that's not really a trial to determine whether or not his businesses uh, defrauded people, because it's already been established that they have the judge anger on New York case is uh, determining. And frankly, we could get an answer on this as early <clears throat> as tomorrow, uh, how much money he owes and whether or not he's going to be allowed to do business in New York ever again. But that's different. OK, that's different. This is the hush money case. You know, we really need to to print something out or we need to post something on the WCPTA20.com digital website page so that we can keep each and every one of these cases and the progress that they make straight. It is so confusing. So um, it kind of, to me, I'm, you know, I'm glad one of these cases is coming to trial. But Alvin Bragg was delaying getting um, a schedule date for this because the assumption was some of these other cases, um, the D.C. indictment, the Fulton County, Georgia indictment, these cases were believed to be on a faster track, and he didn't want any requirements in his case to interfere with any of these larger cases against Donald Trump. And the fact that we have gone ahead and scheduled this means Alvin Bragg is pretty darn sure that between now and the 25th of March, nothing is going to happen in these other cases of any real note. None of these other cases are going to require Donald Trump's presence in court on a daily basis. So, you know what? We might as well. So the case that had willingly stepped to the back of the line to allow these other cases to go forward, uh, that case has now uh, moved to the forefront. Well, you know, it's something. It may not be the biggest, the toughest, the baddest, but it's something. We will um, we will keep an eye on that. So you got that? March 25th, Donald Trump goes on trial in New York. Hush money, the payoffs to the women he slept with while he was running for president so that none of them 
would speak out. There's um, a lot of news about Russia, really on a on a couple of fronts. <sighs> Apparently, um, the news that uh, was just posted exclusively on the Wall Street Journal website about an hour ago said that, um, you know, we privatized because we just didn't want a lot the money. We privatized a lot of our space um, effort. And uh, Elon Musk has put satellites in orbit that are now used for communications. And uh, you have to have a terminal, you know, like a computer terminal to access them. And Russia was forbidden from having these. Because these systems can be used. And very famously, when Ukraine wanted access to this system, Elon Musk wouldn't give it to them because he said, you know, I know that they're going to use these satellites to monitor Russian ships and blow Russian ships up. And I don't want to be involved in this war. So Ukraine, you're not allowed to do this. Well, turns out Russia doesn't play by the rules. I know you're shocked by that. Oh, oh, Russia doesn't play by the rules. So they have been using intermediaries to buy these terminals. Somebody buys a terminal ostensibly for a legitimate use, only they pack that terminal up and they ship it to Russia. And um, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that um, Russians are believed to now have thousands of these Starlike, Starlink satellite internet terminals, and that they are using these satellites to spy on Ukraine. This could be a real blow, a real dangerous situation. For the Ukraine, Ukrainian people, um, you know, this plus our seeming inability to get them any aid, where we are getting reports now that they really have to back off from some fights because they don't have enough ammunition for their guns. So, Elon Musk, by the way, has uh, basically said that Ukraine doesn't have a chance in this war, that it might as well just stop, stop tomorrow because, of course, Putin's going to win and How could anybody think otherwise? So let's let's remember that the Russians are not our friends. Let's remember that a lot of people believe that if they win in Ukraine, they are going to continue to move, probably first on somebody nearby like Moldova. But don't think that um, a desire to uh, march into Poland is something that Vladimir Putin can't imagine. The people of Poland are becoming very concerned, and rightly so, especially if Donald Trump is reelected president. If Donald Trump is reelected president, I think we can pretty much count on World War Three. He's going to tell Putin, do whatever you want. He already has publicly. You want to go after a native country? Well, if they're not if they haven't paid all their NATO bills, I'll just stand back and applaud. That's not how it works. So we've also learned via Congressman Mike Turner 
that um, Russia is uh, trying to figure out how to put um, bombs in space. Sounds like a Muppets skit. Bombs in space. Um, Russia is apparently not doing this as we speak, but they are trying to build an infrastructure that they can have in space that is capable of firing weapons, uh, particularly nuclear missiles. Can you imagine that? If Russia has nuclear missiles they control in space, what, what part of the world would be safe? Vladimir Putin wouldn't have to even stop at his professed goal of reuniting the USSR as one Soviet socialist republic again. He wouldn't, he, he'd have the world. Adam Kinzinger was on last night on CNN, now talking with Caitlin Collins, and they touched on all of this stuff. Listen to what Adam Kinzinger said last night. Russia is losing the space fight, so it is nothing to think that they wouldn't just basically destroy access to orbit and destroy the satellites, because that would harm us way more than it would harm them. And, and lastly, I'll say, here's a thing that I have a concern with. Elon Musk. So we have, I'm not against private sector helping get us to space and in some cases being part of our defense strategy. But Elon Musk has been out there very openly showing affection to Russia. He just did a space on Twitter where he was saying there's no way Ukraine can win, which is garbage. And this is a guy that has made his living as a contractor for the United States government and as a significant part of our defense strategy, particularly with space. This is something that as a government we have to take very seriously. We have an openly sympathetic man to Russia and Russia's aims in Ukraine. Well, the government gives him a lot of deference. a significant part of our defense. I mean, they do. Rodan Farrow's report in The New Yorker, we, we had him on the show, he said it was that they were, the government was checking things that they could say to him with Elon before they said the, the things to, to Ronan, the reporter. Yeah, I mean, this is it's a huge problem. I mean, we've, we've become a soft oligarchy in this country where just a few people hold not just a ton of money, but now in this case, in essence, our access to space, uh, our ability to put satellites in space, it's a concern. I get it. Look, I'm, I'm not against Elon having a role in this at all, but I am concerned with his open affection to Russia and this is something the government has got to say, look, Elon, if you want to be a contractor to us, we've got to make sure you're loyal to the foreign policy of the United States, or at least not hostile to. Shocking, huh? Um, yeah, we, we're going to give you a huge contract, but we, uh, we need to know, are you really in our corner? Are you, you know, we're just, just checking, asking for a friend. You know, we're going to give you this incredible power, this incredible responsibility. We're going to write these huge checks. Um, you won't, like, stab us in the back, will you, Elon? <sighs> A while back, recently, fairly recently, you know, I haven't um, been, ever since he gave up on his military blockade, I have been um, loath to play any sound bites from Tommy Tuberville. The senator from Alabama, widely acknowledged to be the stupidest member in the Senate. Well, that um, 
Ignorance continues. He was talking recently about um, the invasion of Ukraine, and he was like, well, you know, I can kind of see why Putin did it. Nobody wants missiles on their doorstep. You know, nobody wants to live right next to missiles that are pointed at them. It's it's real quick. Listen to Tommy Tuberville. Tell us about the missiles. But we forced this issue. We kept forcing NATO all the way to Eastern Europe. And uh, Putin just got tired of it. He said, listen, I do not want missiles on my border from the United States of America. It'd be like Russia coming to Mexico and putting missiles in Mexico. Uh, I understand what, you're, what he's talking about. Okay, he is so freaking stupid. Do you know why Ukraine is having trouble defending itself? Because it's signed a deal. Ukraine used to be a nuclear power. They had nukes. And Russia didn't like that. And they knew Russia didn't like that. All they wanted was peace. So they, an agreement was drawn up that said, we will get rid of our nuclear missiles if you promise to leave us alone. You promise you'll never invade Ukraine and we'll get our, we'll, we'll get rid of our nukes. And Russia signed the deal and Ukraine signed the deal and the nukes went away and Russia invaded. Tommy Tuberville just is breathtakingly stupid. You know, Republicans, since they don't really have any core beliefs anymore, have you noticed how often they're running people who are famous, especially from sports? Ooh, Republicans love sports. We had Herschel Walker in Georgia. He's black and he's, he's a Heisman Trophy winner. It's a, it's a double for us. We got Steve Garvey, who the Republicans put up for uh, Senate in California. He was at his first debate and they asked him what his policies were. And he was like, well, I don't really have anything yet. But once I do have policies, they're going to be great. The guy was on stage. The only Republican, three Democrats were up there. And it never occurred to him that he might want to have a position, might want to say that on this issue or that issue, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do when I'm the senator. No, ah, you know, I haven't really given it a lot of thought yet. But once I have policies, they're going to be the best policies you've ever seen. Tommy Tuberville had no real political experience, but damn, he was a good coach. Good coach. You know, we know him. You got to be smart to be a coach, right? You got to know how to handle people. I bet he'd be great in the Senate. Only nobody's asked him uh, to put a, a football team or any kind of team together. Uh, nobody's asked him how to recruit athletes. It's a different kind of information you need to have to be effective in the Senate. And Tuberville doesn't have any of it. None of it. Zero zip zilch. I don't understand. He is such an embarrassment. He's not just an embarrassment to Alabama. Whenever he opens his mouth, he's an embarrassment to the entire U.S. Senate. But he was, you know, he was a football coach, so there's that. I guess, huh? We are going to take a break when we come back. We're going to talk to uh, Greg Hines. 
from Crane Chicago Business right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm pleased to welcome back to our program Greg Hines from Crane's Chicago Business. Greg, how are you today? I'm fine, Joan, uh, but uh, I'm trying to get over how you just removed yourself from Tommy Tuberfield's Christmas card list. You're going to regret this, young lady. Uh, yes, I know, and I'm going to I'm going to be so sad when when the holidays roll around and I I don't get my normal gift from him. Uh, it's just uh, I that man. I you know I, you, we've seen it several times. They ran Herschel Walker. They've got Steve Garvey. They've got Tommy Tuberville. I think it it speaks to the dearth of good candidates for high office that the Republican Party keeps going to. Oh, they're famous from sports. People already like them. They already know their name. What what could go wrong? You know it does, but I hate to admit that uh, that. Uh, uh, that uh, if I can tell a little bit of history, the Democrats kind of do this thing, too. Uh, if, when I first started uh, uh, working in this business, I, I was assigned to cover the CTA. Well, guess who was on the CTA board? Ernie Banks. Ernie oh. Banks knew about uh, about as much about uh, public transportation as, uh, as, as driving the vehicle <laughs> with the balls to the batting cage. Uh, but, you know... Uh, it's it's certainly moved in that direction lately, and if voters are dumb enough to fall for it, they get what they deserve, I guess, but it's not good for the country. I agree with you. Well, you know, you make an interesting point. You say if, if voters are dumb enough to fall for it, I think what they're counting on, I, you know, I've been using this phrase, and I read it and see it and hear it all the time, the low-information voter, the people who, unlike you and unlike me, just don't want to be bothered by any of this stuff. You know, they just want to get their kids to school and attend sports games and do their hobbies and do their job and watch TV at night. And yeah, maybe, you know, the week before an election, I'll look at who's running and try to figure out who I want to vote for. But, you know, I'm just I'm just not going to pay attention to the day to day kind of thing. And I think that we I don't know. I'm sure they've always been around in large numbers, but it seems to me <laughs> that um, it's it's this like mysterious group of voters that people are trying to figure out all these different ways to break through, break through. But pay attention, pay attention. Look at this. Um, does it, well, does it I, seem I, to you I, there's couple, more of it than there thoughts. used to be or or are we just paying more attention to the, quote, low, low information voter than we used to? Well, um, first, let me push back just a little bit on your premise. Uh, despite uh, despite uh, all that thinking that uh, Herschel Walker in particular was going to, well, he cornered the black vote and he's going to rob in 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 uh, in, uh, in Georgia. Uh, last time I looked, uh, the the senator from Georgia was named Raphael Warnock. Yes, but it was a lot closer uh, than it should have been when you had somebody who was, by his own admission, mentally ill and had been violent, for God's sake. That should have been it should have been 90 percent Warnock, 10 percent Herschel Walker. Well, I don't disagree with you, but the fact of the matter is uh, increasingly in this country, we're divided into tribes. You know, there's the red tribe and there's the blue tribe. Uh, you know, I mean, look at how. I mean, there's nothing probably Donald Trump could do now that would that would uh, lose him his 25 percent of the vote. 
I agree. They're the people that love him. They don't care. You know, I mean, he could, I mean, literally said the other day, yeah, Russia doesn't, you know, somebody doesn't pay their NATO dues, fine. Russia ought to invade them. Um, they don't care. It's because they so hate the other side. I don't think it's it's extensive on the Democratic side, but it is there. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, that's what happened in Georgia. Republicans are going to stick with the Republican, regardless of how screwed up he was. I, I guess you're right, um, I, which is actually interesting. Um, I think that's exactly when she finally drops out of the race. I think that's what what how Nikki Haley is going to finesse endorsing Trump. She's going to drop out of the race and say, uh, you know, I'm not going to you know, dismantling my campaign, but I'm going to vote Republican because we've got to get uh, Joe Biden out of the White House. She may not even say Trump's name, but she's she's not going to say, you know, he's a he's a bad man. He is not fit to be president. Therefore, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. That's she's she's going to find a way to endorse Trump. And we all know it. You know, you're probably right, but uh, I think she's going to take take her time. Uh, she may well, even if she gets any kind of respectable vote in uh in South Carolina, uh, as long as the money comes in, she can go on to Super Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spite has turned has turned mean and nasty and very personal. When he went after her husband, for God's sake, uh, for uh, where's her husband, where's her husband, and, you know, implying their marital difficulties. In fact, the guy's in the armed forces, in the National Guard, he's serving overseas. Uh, uh, when he when he and his wife would both like him to be here. Now, you do something like that. It tends to make a politician want to get even, and her getting even is to stay in because it's, it's clearly bothering him. I mean, he, I mean, he almost you can see him almost bounce up and down at his rallies and, and his press conferences. <laughs> he wants it as over and done with. He wants the coronation so he can proceed to be the nominee. But as long as she's around, he he, he hasn't quite done it yet. So I, th- I agree with you. It's going to happen, and she'll probably find a way. But she's going to take her sweet time. Yeah. Uh, I don't really need to talk about Ernie Banks, but I do want to talk about the CTA. Um, you recently wrote uh, about the Chicago Transit Authority um, needing money. And, um, well, I'm not going to sit here and tell you what you wrote. Share with our listeners the, the gist of your last article. Well, what I wrote is that is that uh, both the CTA and, and Metro and Pace, all three of them, in fact, um, are facing a real fiscal cliff at the end of last of next year, and and that's for two reasons. One, uh, during the pandemic, when we were all told to stay at stay at home, the federal government offered a whole bunch of money uh, to keep transit running uh, for those that needed it. Uh, but that money is about to run out. It runs out at the end of 2025. The other part of the problem is that if if uh, if uh, Patronage return to its normal level, well, then the, the, the CTA would just need the same kind of subsidy it was getting before, mostly from sales taxes. In fact, uh, uh, ridership seemed to have stalled somewhere in the low 60% of what it used to be. And that's a real problem. Uh, uh, if they don't get those people back, they have to, uh, uh, they have to go down to Springfield and beg for a tax increase. Uh, that's something... Uh, uh, legislators are loath to do, particularly when a lot of people have a lot of problems with the CTA and say, you know, they want to riot because it's dirty and it's dangerous. Or at least that's how it's perceived. And that's what I wrote about. Yeah. Um, one um, former reporter who I follow on social media has always been um, somebody who always used CTA 
to get around. And about a year ago, she posted, she said, you know, those of you who followed me know that I'm a big supporter of public transportation, but I'm sharing with you the fact that I am no longer going to ride the CTA at night. I just don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. And I thought, man, when you you lose the people who um, have spent their whole lives, you know, using only public transportation to get around, that's that's something that you need to sit up and take notice about. And and Greg, I know you've you've looked at this in much more detail than I have. As as just an outsider looking in, I think to myself, well, what would it take? What would it take so that people um, didn't smoke on the CTA? What would it take so that people don't, you know, go to the bathroom um, on the floor of the CTA buses? What what would it take? And if if somebody went to Springfield with a proposal of here are our problems, this is how we've determined we need to fix them. And this is what it's going to cost. As a legislator, I would be more open to that than just somebody coming to me hat in hand and saying we need more. We need more money. You've looked at this. How do we fix the problems of the fact that people don't feel safe and people are sick of the smoking and they're sick of buses that smell like urine? Um, that's that's a really good question to, to which there's a bunch of partial answers. A part of the answer is uh, the statistics say that they're a little better than they were a couple of years ago. Uh, the crime rate dropped last year. Uh, they've now started to arrest smokers. Uh, they have uh, uh, hired security, if not uniformed police, on the trains uh, and the buses now. Uh, all that has helped a little bit, but uh, if it's but a it security person enough. without any kind of uh, out any kind of weapon, what are they? What are they there? They're going to shout at somebody who's breaking the rules. Hey, you put out that no, cigarette. If, not, if nothing else, they have a radio. They can call a cop uh, and have them right there. Um, uh, but. Uh, uh, No, it's all right. The bigger part of the problem is that's the reality. uh, But the reality is also there's a perception problem. Um, The CTA's own passenger surveys find that the people who take the train, these aren't people who don't take the train, but the people who take the train less than half say they feel safe on the train. Hello. What kind of business in America would would, uh, would, would continue to be in business with those kind of numbers? Uh, unless people just felt they had no other way to get to work and they couldn't afford to take an Uber everywhere or whatever, so the, so the CTA. Um, they need, I think, what it's going to take is they need in a very high-profile, visible way to demonstrate to people that the system is safer than you think it is and you ought to give it a chance. Uh, I think that means Dolby Carter and a bunch of TV crews commuting. I think that means Mayor Johnson and a bunch of TV crews commuting. CCA says they've tried that, and the media kind of sneered and said, oh, that's a stunt. But uh, I think you need to do that kind of thing uh, to, to demonstrate to people that the system is safe. But they haven't done that. I remember um, when Jane Byrne moved into Cabrini-Green, and, you know, everybody said, oh, it's a stunt. And, you know, yeah, she didn't she didn't stay there for a huge amount of time. Um, but at least in the time when she was there, it got the attention and it was a it was a focus. And it was like, we need to fix this problem. 
Do you think when she did that, it had any long lasting effect? Was it just a, a stunt that that didn't mean anything? And if Mayor Johnson was riding the buses, would it would it be the same thing, Greg? Um, probably about 50 50. Um, in Burns case, I think there were some short term uh, improvements. There's nothing else. When she was there, there were a lot of cops around there, too. Yeah. Um, uh, Cabrini emptied out pretty quickly thereafter, so it's a little hard to tell if it had a uh, truly long, uh, long-range uh, uh, deleterious effect. Uh, uh, in the in the case of Johnson, I think it would make a difference because the CTA insists that the system is safer than it's believed. They, they say they have a perception problem. Well, fine, prove that by getting important people to put their bodies on the system to show us that it's safe. So you don't think just um, releasing a report, the the number of police calls, the number of incidents showing that it's lower than people perceive. You don't think the data itself would be convincing? No, uh, this is this is real primal. When people get scared, wave the numbers at them doesn't work. Yeah. They want to, they want to see a visible presence. You want to see a cop. You want to see somebody arrested. Uh, you want you want to see. A, uh, uh, security at the corner. Uh, I no, I don't. I don't think numbers, true numbers, are 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 the answer. This you need human presence. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, talking to Greg Hines from Crane's Chicago Business. We are going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. I'm joined by Greg Hines of Crane's Chicago Business. His most recent article for Crane's is on the CTA, which we were just talking about. But, Greg, I know that you, uh, as a avid student and observer of politics have been keeping an eye on other things going around on the state of Illinois. When we spoke last time, we talked about uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson. Um, Do you have any updates, any more thoughts on uh, his evolution as Chicago's mayor? Uh, Probably more of the same, um, uh, Joan. Um, uh, uh, on the negative side, he continues to do all kinds of favors for the people that brought him to the dance, the Chicago Teachers Union. <clears throat> it's in one thing after the other. The most latest is uh, is he came down in favor of the union's position that, oh, we don't need to elect the entire Chicago Board of Education this year, when incidentally the union doesn't have enough money to compete and win. I said, well, I'm going to elect half of them, and I'm going to appoint them. Uh, the other half, and we'll elect the, 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 the full board in, in, in two years from now. Well, that's that's not very democratic. I mean, if you're for an, for an elected board, you're for an elected board. Uh, what, do you, what in effect, I th- it appears that he and uh, his union allies were saying was, well, we, we're not confident that the right people would be elected if we elected <laughs> the whole board this year. Uh, so we're only so we're going to concentrate our fire in the mayor, and we'll, we'll let the mayor pick the pick the, the other ones, and we know he'll pick the right the right kind of folks. No, that's not supposed to work. Okay. On the other hand, um, uh, the folks at the uh, Chicago Bears and the Chicago White Sox, uh, they, they've had very productive discussions. I'm writing about that lately. lately. Very productive discussions with the mayor's team about uh, about uh, 
backing or helping new stadiums as a stadium they want to build. Uh, uh, the Bears uh, at the South parking lot by Soldier Field, the uh, uh, the White Sox at the 78 property at the, on the south edge of the loop. Um, that's that's kind of the traditional thing. You would expect that Chicago mayors would 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 want to help do something like that, a big business help like that. Um, so that kind of offsets to some degree, um, you know. But overall, um, uh, it's, it's clearly budget problems. Uh, they had a big fight today about the, the police union contract. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I listen. I, you know, yeah, I love I think, listening I to city council that, meetings. I'm like eating, eating my lunch. I'm making notes for the show. But every in every room of the house, the city council meeting is on. Yeah, the mayor has appointed some good people, but his but his personal staff is pretty slim. I think he's still continuing to come up to speed. And you would have thought it would have would have hoped it would have happened by now. Yeah, I thought that was a, a that was a really interesting discussion that they were going to have about it had to do with arbitration of the the police part and um, whether or not you know serious cases should be allowed to be behind closed doors, et cetera, and so forth. The other thing that um, that has gotten him in the news a lot lately is the shot spotter contract, and I'm a little I'm. First of all, I don't understand why people who are opposed to ShotSpotter use the Adam Toledo shooting as an example, because that was ShotSpotter working the way it's supposed to. Shots were fired. Police were called. That's I mean, the, right. the complaints that I take seriously are like if somebody if there a car backfires or if somebody's setting off backyard fireworks or, you know, uh, M80s or something. And then all of a sudden, uh, an armed police presence descends on the neighborhood. I could see where that would be terrifying for the people who live there. But the Adam Toledo shooting was shot spotter working the way it is supposed to work. The shooting was tragic. Um, it, um, it, was, um, it was a situation where an officer was in pursuit of a young man who clearly had a gun. He stopped by a fence unseen by the officer. Uh, the arm behind the fence dropped the gun, but the officer couldn't see that. And then the young man put his hands up. The officer thought he was bringing the gun up to shoot him. The officer fired, and this young Hispanic man died. It is awful. Every aspect of that situation is just awful. But to use that as an example why shot spotter is bad seems to me not the not the correct example. Also, the mayor's gotten a lot of flack for the way he did it. I mean, the Franz Spielman in the Sun-Times, you know, sort of characterized it as as him doing it, you know, um, as with as a little fanfare um, as possible and at the last possible minute. And then, you know, supposedly he wanted to extend the contract just long enough for the DNC to come to town and then we'll get rid of it. Well, if you think it's effective enough that you want it here for the DNC, you know, why why would we be getting rid of it? There's it's it's really a messy situation. What are your thoughts, Greg? Uh, I agree with much of what you said, Joan. Um, well, I was kind of all over the map, to... so you better clarify. Okay, well, let me let me clarify. I do think there are some reasons to really seriously consider whether this is a good expenditure of money. There's been a number of studies that have looked at this, and they've raised, I think, some real questions 
how about whether spending this much money, several million dollars, on this particular program is more valuable than spending that money on something else? Uh-huh. Um, a lot of other uh, a lot of other cities have dropped. Top uh, spot shatter, and you have to answer, okay, what, what do they say? Maybe they're seeing the same things we're seeing here. On the other hand, I agree that uh, that uh, that uh, while while there are concerns about sending police into a neighborhood too often, um, police are doing their job. If somebody's out there shooting guns, they shouldn't be. They should they should be in jail or, or incarcerated or. Uh, uh, in restorative justice, something, but they shouldn't just be left to go out there and, and, and shoot. Um, you know, the, I think the core problem, Joan, is that, is that in this country, we tend to go from one extreme to the other, and we don't end up in a happy middle. We go right by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for years in this town, I don't think it was an, an open secret that in the name of security, uh, police would uh, push around and and uh, and ill treat any black kid who they, who they didn't like, uh, whether he was doing something or not. Uh, in many cases, they'd, they'd come up with, uh, remember John Burge, they'd torture people, mm-hmm. they'd come up with space evidence or whatever. And that became the unofficial uh, uh, operating principles of much the Chicago police force for, for a number of years. Uh, and it's only natural to want to prevent that and to tend to, at a very visceral level, say, well, those are the, the guys that made me scared in my own neighborhood. On the other hand, the chaos of letting everybody run around and gangbang and carjack uh, without fear of being caught uh, and, or uh, a retribution is, is terrible. Uh, it, it's destroying city neighborhoods right now. Um, the, the numbers have turned have turned a little bit better, but they're still much worse than they were before the pandemic. Um, so my point is, you have to have a happy median where no, the police are not being used in oppressive ways and are not occupying armies, but the police are there working with the neighborhood to uh, uh, to make sure that criminals know, potential criminals know that uh, that if they get caught, that there's a good chance you're going to get caught, that there's going to be a response. It's finding that middle is the hard point, and we haven't done it. Yeah, I guess the thing about um, eliminating this contract that stands out to me is you either think the technology is good or you don't. You support it or you don't. And yes, he made a campaign promise that he was going to get rid of it. And so he did. But then asking to extend it through the summer for when the DNC undercuts his whole argument, makes it look like what he's doing is not because the money's ill-spent or not because it doesn't keep people safe, but rather, well, I said I was going to do this, so I better do it. You know, it, that's it, to me, the way it was done made it look more political than a real thought-out, um, well-reasoned yeah, decision. Yeah, that it, 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 either made it, it either made it look like, uh, like he's being hypocritical or on the or right. raised the possibility he was just listening to some guy at DNC who yelled at him and says, you can't do this, we got to have this. All right, mm-hmm. I'll keep it. And frankly, the same thing, you know, there was no reason for him to come out and make a big pronouncement about um, that he's going to like do everything he can to get rid of all the police presence at all the Chicago schools. That decision was turned over to local school councils. Some of them wanted a cop there. Some of them didn't. It was a system that seemed to me to be working. And, and that was like, well, why did he even I mean get into that? I say we're not very good in the, in the society, in the, in the city right now. It's it coming off the reasonable middle. Uh, uh, yeah, there are instances in which, uh, in which 
bad cops in, in schools cause problems, fine, let the school decide to throw them out. But there are also instances in which the schools and the parents and the, and the teachers want the cop because everything has gone well. Fine, let them keep them. Uh, but uh, uh, the ideology now on the progressive left is that, uh, is that uh, cops are bad, they're a necessary evil at best, and we don't want them. Uh, that's that, that's not oper- that's not operating in the real world. Um, I mean, I see this kind of political overreaction all the time. Uh, uh, you mentioned the upcoming elections. One of the things that's on the ballot is the uh, is the Bring Home Chicago uh, ordinance, uh, which would uh, which would jack up the real estate transfer tax when the when the high end properties are sold. It's being it's being sold to the public as a mansion tax. Well, we're going to make those rich guys mm-hmm. who live on Lakeshore Drive and have the fancy condos pay. The fact of the matter is, almost all the money comes from businesses, small business and big business. Some of them can afford it. Some of them can't. Uh, downtown office buildings now, to the extent they sell it all, are selling for for a, a quarter or a half of what they sold for a few years ago. Uh, there's the highest vacancy rates in the in the in uh, uh, since the depression, you want to put a big tax on them, little, little neighborhood uh, schools, uh, neighborhood stores, and whatever uh, technically are worth a million dollars because they have uh, apartments upstairs. Uh, the, you know uh, that person's going to have to pay. But you know the ideology says, well, we're going to soak the rich people. We'll, we'll worry about the details later. We have to have the money yeah. for the homeless. Yeah, but but you create more problems in them in the meantime. I I agree. Greg, it's always fun to talk to you. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. Okay, John. We are going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Thank you, Ian. Yeah, take it away, Amy. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Joan Esposito. Whoa, that's an explosive sentence. On WCPT 820. Uh, this month, WTTW begins the sixth year of what they call the First Hand Initiative. This time around, they are focusing on homelessness, the unhoused in Chicago. There are a number of documentaries. I believe there are five documentaries where people who are experiencing homelessness tell their stories, and talk about their lives. You can go to WTTW.com slash firsthand uh, to see this project. We are going to spend um, the next hour talking about this work, why it was done, what was the point, and hearing from some of the people who were involved in these documentaries. Uh, let me introduce, we, we're going to try something we haven't really tried before. We are going to have four guests simultaneously. Um, first, we, I'd like to introduce Mario Tharp, who's the producer and director of this. Dan Protus, the executive producer. Jackie Chacon, who is one of the documentary subjects. And Brian Rogers, who is another one of the subjects of the documentaries. Welcome to all of you. And so that we keep this as um, clear as possible. Dan, we're going to start with you. Um, First of all, um, where did the idea for this come from? Whose idea was this to do this? 
So this is, uh, as you mentioned, an ongoing series. This is the sixth year we've been doing firsthand. And the initial concept of firsthand going back six years ago was that we would take big issues like this year, homelessness, uh, that first year we looked at gun violence, where the reporting by the media often tends to be statistic driven and um, maybe almost dehumanizing. We, we tend to lose sight of the human beings that are at the center of these uh, issues and to put a human face on the issue um, so that you really get up close and personal uh, with people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and so the title, as the title suggests, firsthand, these are firsthand perspectives. And so Jackie and Brian are telling their own stories. Um, and we've been kicking around the idea of tackling homelessness for, I think, five years now. And this year, the stars finally aligned. And it seemed like a good time to be telling these stories. Uh, we saw a lot. We, Chicago and we, America, saw some real successes uh, during COVID, as a matter of fact, because there was this infusion of, of federal dollars and political will, quite frankly, to get people off the streets um, and into shelter. And now some of those dollars are starting to dry up and uh, the eviction moratoriums are have disappeared. And so there's a danger of people slipping back into homelessness. Dan, before I move on to our other guests, um, you said that we had some success during COVID because of an influx of federal money. What did that federal money do? Did it build more shelters? Did it offer uh, more rent subsidies? How did that federal money ameliorate this problem, at least temporarily? Uh, well, they, you know, they were famously uh, housing people in hotel rooms. First of all, there was just an increase in supply of hotel rooms. Um, but also it allowed some of the nonprofits that work in this space to innovate. You know, ha having worked at a nonprofit myself, I know how when um, times are tough or you're cash strapped, you, you kind of need to stick to the playbook. But here they were really able to innovate with these uh, rapid rehousing initiatives um, where and, and they kind of leaned into the housing first philosophy where whatever other issues someone might be facing in their life. You know, let's deal with those issues later. Let's first get a roof over their head, and then it will be easier to address some of the other underlying issues that might have led to them becoming homeless uh, in the first place. And uh, so another example is matching up landlords with people who are unhoused. Um, so All Chicago, uh, a nonprofit that we've been working with quite a bit on this series, has this amazing program where they have keep a running database of um, landlords who have empty units and work to match those units up with people who need them. And you've seen that deteriorate since the COVID money stopped. Uh, part of the reason I want to ask about this is I was talking to Jesse Fuentes, a progressive member of the Chicago City Council and a big supporter of Bring Chicago Home. And I asked her uh, where the money from Bring Chicago Home, assuming it passes, would go. And she had this entire list of, of all these different organizations and all these different things. And I said, well, wouldn't it make more sense to just take this money and, I don't know, provide housing 
Um, you know, but it was like, oh, you know, support and job training and mental health services. And I'm not saying that that stuff isn't great, but I, I thought that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, this idea that start what you just referenced, start with housing. I don't care if they're an addict. I don't care if they're an alcoholic, uh, what other mental health problems they got, but start with getting them a home. And my understanding was that that had proven to be pretty effective. Did I misread the data? Yeah, no, I mean, the number one predictor of homelessness in a metropolitan area is expensive housing. I mean, there's a one-to-one, you know, Seattle has a homelessness problem, for instance, not because there are more addicts or more people with mental health uh, disorders in Seattle, but because housing has become really unaffordable. And so people who are most vulnerable are more likely than to to slip into homelessness. Mario, I want to bring you into the discussion. Mario Tharp is the producer and the the director. Um, So, were you, Mario, like out in the community? I mean, I assume um, that you and your camera crew were all over the city of Chicago. Tell me about that. Yeah, hey, John. First, uh, thanks for having us on. We really appreciate it. Um, yeah, so I was one of five directors. Um, you know, each one of us had an individual that we followed. Um, I followed a gentleman by the name of Dan. Um, of course, not Dan Protest, but another guy named Dan. And, yeah, we spent, you know, probably up to a month, depending on the, the individual and what was going on in their life, we spent at least a month just traveling, basically following them around the city. So whatever they did, we just wanted to be um, that fly on the wall, if you will, where we showed up with a camera and whatever was happening in their life, we just wanted to document it. Um, and we did that um, for, you know, nine, eight, nine, ten days um, over that duration. And we were able to capture a lot of moving, uh, powerful moments, um, emotional moments. And, it, you know, we were really able to see what it's like to be unhoused in Chicago. Now, I can say that two of the five subjects um, live on the street in Camden. Um, where the other three, and two of them we have on the line, are connected with organizations, um, whether that is, um, you know, St. Linda's Ministry or A Safe Haven. Um, but, you know, we were we were able to, to see what it was like during that period. And, um, yeah, with, with me being one of them, I can tell you that it was really eye-opening for me to see what, in particular, the guy I followed, Dan, had to deal with on a daily basis, um, trying to figure out where's a safe place for him to sleep because his dilemma was, where do I go um, that's safe? Downtown was his, his, his area. Um, but, you know, there were a number of times when he was, he was harassed. He was jumped by other homeless people. He was robbed. Um, and that was his struggle daily is where do I go? You know, he'll sleep for two or three hours a night. Um, so yeah, it, it, yeah, we, we, to answer your question initially, we followed them for an extended period of time and captured some very powerful moments. Oh, that's, um, uh, that's amazing. You said that the, the two people that you covered were people who were already, um, 
getting some kind of support services. And there were other camera crews maybe uh, following people who just strictly stayed on the street. Um, were you able to get a feel for um, how much being attached to support services, how much does it help? A lot? A little? Not at all? Well, I think the I think the initial thing is that that you know if if you are attached to support so support service, you have a roof over your head, and you know Brian, who's on the phone, and and Jackie can certainly talk to that. But Yolanda, who lives in an encampment, um, does not. She's not connected with uh, a nonprofit, so she doesn't have. She she's there by herself. She's living on the street. Um, and, and so is Dan. He is not connected with um, an organization per se. Now, the night ministry, as we all know about, they will make their rounds around the city. But that's, you know, once or twice a week to give on, on location or on the spot services, whether that's med- uh, med- medicine or uh, just uh, try to give, put them in a situation where they can look for housing, uh, food, clothing. Uh, but that's different than the other three, being Kimberly, Jackie, and Brian, who are actually housed at a nonprofit where they are able to get a roof or have a roof over their head. Wow. I'd like to bring in uh, the two guests who uh, you will see when you log on to WTTW.com slash firsthand two of the people featured in these five documentaries about people experiencing homelessness here in Chicago. Uh, Jackie Chacon is one of those people. Hello, Jackie. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Hello. Thank you for having me. Can you tell our listeners your story? How did you come to be without uh, housing? Uh, well, I was living with my mom and my sister, and um, we just got into a really big argument, and, you know, things weren't really going right, so I decided that it was time for me to get away and do things by myself. And you didn't have any place else, any place else to go? No. No other relatives much. or friends? Because or... I know a lot of people no. are the ones that are also unhoused but frequently don't get counted are people who are, say, couch surfing at a friend or a relative's house. You you didn't have anybody you could call on for that kind of help? Yeah, unfortunately, no. It's just pretty much me and my kids. And how many kids do you have? I have three. I have two boys and one girl. So what did you do? Uh, I ended up just packing up a bag of clothes and leaving everything behind. And um, a couple days, I got reached out by um, the Salvation Army, and they took me to A.S.A. Haven. And I've been there since uh, July. When you say a safe haven, do you mean like a shelter? Yes, a shelter. Mm-hmm. And how is that going? I mean, I've heard a lot of people say that shelters are a godsend, and uh, there are other people who don't want to go to a shelter under any circumstances because they don't feel safe there. 
Uh, so at first, when I got there, I didn't really know what to expect, but um, they do, you know, they make sure that everyone's safe, no one's bringing in nothing that they're supposed to be bringing in. They have, you know, the families, the single women, the men, everybody separated. Um, there's always staff on the floor, uh, security always walking around. So you feel safe there? In in a sense, yes. And sometimes, you know, it's it's a scary world out there. Yeah. Um, how when you have kids? I mean, I assume shelters don't come with babysitting services. So how are you able to, you know, to try to get work to 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 get out of this situation? Well, thankfully, I already had a job. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Um, so the only thing I had to figure out was a daycare, and um, I ended up finding a daycare within two weeks so I can start working. And isn't it true, uh, Jackie, that for a lot of the shelters, um, and explain this to me, whoever, uh, Jackie or Dan or, or Mario, because I've heard one complaint with a lot of the shelters is that come morning, um, everyone is expected to leave. It's not like a place that it's not like a real house where you live there. And, you know, whether it's just simply some place to get you off the street at night. Is that what it was for you, Jackie? And in, and are there different kinds of shelters, Mario and Dan, some of which you can uh, are more like residences and some that have this uh, not during the day you, policy? Um, well, yeah. at my yeah, shelter, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Jackie. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. And, um, well, at my shelter, um, we are allowed to. Uh, they call them passes, and you know, it's either if you're going to go to work or if you're looking for a job or looking for a daycare. You know, they'll give you the pass to go out, but you just have to come back at a certain time. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there are. Yeah, Joan. So there is. I mean, you, you know, you have what, what they call day shelters. Um, and I think when, you know, folks think of like Pacific Garden Mission, um, uh, places where you can just go and you're there for the day. Um, but then there are other organizations or, or other shelters like a safe haven um, where you can actually reside there. Uh, it's, more, uh, it's more temporary or transitional housing. Ultimately, the goal, I think, for a lot of folks that, regardless of which shelter you live in, is to get permanent housing. That's mm-hmm. what you want. Um, and then, of course, then, then some people are not in shelters at all. They're just living on the street, where it's, it's the case for Yolanda and for our other guy, Dan. So, yes, there are uh, different different shelters, and they serve different purposes. Um, uh, and you can certainly get, you know, uh, assistance and um, th- different things that you need to ultimately work towards your getting from the house. I'd like to introduce our uh, fourth guest. Brian Rogers is also the focus of one of these five documentaries. Uh, he is also one of the unhoused people you will see in uh, in these short films. Brian, can you tell us your story? First of all, thank you for having me, Joan. I appreciate your time and effort in bringing this subject to light. Um, Yeah, I share a little bit with you. Um, 
my experience with homelessness uh, started um, with my battle with uh, substance abuse and um, going in and out of the prison industrial complex. So I was fighting uh, battles on many fronts. Um, I struggled with substance abuse issues, cognitive behavior issues, food insecurity, and um, job stability issues. Um, but, you know, it came a time where I sat down in my uh, cell downstate in Illinois, and I wrestled with myself to find out the root cause of my entrapment with the prison system. The question was, was what is the common denominator that keeps me going back to prison? Mm-hmm. You know, each time that um, I left, I had the best intentions, preparedness. I went to um, drug program facilities. Um, I did all of that. I had the tools I learned from the different programs and the motivation to match it. But what I didn't have each and every time that I was released from prison was a stable housing situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So little did I know at the time um, how vital that really was. So in the meanwhile, I'm bouncing from friends' houses every time that I got out, uh, shelters, I slept in my car, I had uh, brief house squatting situations on different properties, and I was doing all of this while trying to uh, maintain to be drug-free, crime-free, and complying with parole board stipulations, and um, also trying to find employment. Well, um, needless to say, that's a lot of pressure, you know, bouncing. (laughs) Yes, a whole lot of pressure. Everybody uh, wants something from you, even though they want the best, but it's it's a stressful and stretching situation. So, yeah, Um, with um, not having a stable home, you know, things were always crashing down around me. You know, I always felt that pressure and... um, you know, I I didn't know how to handle it. So yeah. once I found out that that was the common denominator, I said, hey, look, man, uh, what you need to do is you need to go somewhere once you get released that's going to provide stable housing where you can ground yourself, where it provides all the wraparound services you need in one location. You don't have to worry about somebody waking up in the morning having a bad day. Hey, you got to go. Or, hey, you got to bring, mm-hmm. give me $30 today. Or, uh, hey, you're eating up too much food. You're taking up too much time in the restroom. You got to go. And so forth. All those little things, you know, play major parts when you talk about uh, doubled up situations and uh, people living with each other and stuff of, of the sort. Um, the shelter systems, yeah, they're different shelters, you know. Um, Illinois Department of Corrections is kind of working a little better, but I think they need to hook up uh, with more entities such as like um, the place where I'm at, St. Leonard's Ministries. Um, And I particularly say this because it provides a re-entering citizen such as myself, like I said, a, a time to get stable. Take care of all of those stipulations. If you need substance abuse treatment, you get that. If you need mental health, you get that. Um, medical is provided to you because let's face it, if you're out on the street and, and you're barely holding on to somebody's house, you're not thinking about going to the doctor. You got to pick and choose. Hey, I'm going to go to a substance abuse class today. How do I get there? Do I have transportation? All of this while you're only provided with $15 gate money when you leave the Illinois Department of Corrections. That doesn't last long. Yeah. So there is a tendency to go back to uh, criminal activity. 
just to try to catch up to say, hey, I'm going to hurry up and get me a place to stay. All I need is a place to stay. If I get a place to stay, I can get all of my stuff transferred there. I can, you know, employers can find me in one location. I don't have to worry about, you know, hey, uh, somebody's going to call, you know, please be on the lookout. Uh, Take a message, you know, for me or, you know, hey, get back with me. Uh, Brian does live here and all of the other sorts, Mm -hmm. so you won't miss a – employment opportunity and you know all this like i said while trying to you know uh, go with the parole stipulations because your parole officer no matter what wants you to get stable they want you to have a job simple as that first things first hey get some id second things come on let's let's move on getting a job and you know the time frame moves kind of quick but by being here in a place like st leonard's is designed um once you release from Illinois Department of Corrections, you go through the program, and once you complete the program, you move on to the next transitional stage, which is St. Andrew's Court, which provides a transition to independent living. So now you get accustomed to doing everything on yourself. By this time, you're expected, and more likely you will have employment by this time because, you know, you have the opportunity where you, you uh, employment can be afforded to you because mm-hmm. you don't have that pressure building up. You don't have to worry about everything else. You're provided with your food, so you got food security and other such. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of places that once you get a link card and you get out, hey, they want your link card. But if you look in that refrigerator and some of those um, – situations, there's no food being provided by those services, those places that say that they do it. So not all shelters are uh, set up the same. Um, And then on top of that, yeah, you do have to leave some of them, such as Pacific Mission Guards, you have to leave first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yep. First thing in the morning, and say you you carrying a whole bunch of bags. You got everything that your life has in a bag. And you're walking around the streets of Chicago. And you have no money. What are you going to do? Where is an employer going to really find you, be able to get in contact with you? Yeah, you can go get your government phone. You can try to balance all of these things out. But more likely than not, that's why the recidivism rate is very high. Because these situations put people in high stressful situations. So it's still like you're paying that penalty over and over again. So it's like um, the deck stacked against you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then when you talk about um, trying to find housing, you know, there's been uh, some bills passed, SB 1367, Senate Bill 1367, which is, uh, you know, a bill that's designed to help returning citizens uh, who are coming back into um our society, and, you know, the bill requires housing authorities to collect the data and on vacant uh, rental units and waiting lists and report it to the Illinois Criminal Justice uh, Information Authority. Um, but not all the time, you know, people in those positions, as far as when you're dealing with the Department of Corrections, does things like they're supposed to do, you know, and, you know, just like when I was being released and I wanted to come to St. Leonard's, it was like, hey, well, two days before you get released, um, you'll be placed somewhere. I don't want to just be placed somewhere. I want to go somewhere where I can see where I don't have to come back down here and have this same conversation with you. I care about what happens to me once I'm released out of prison. So as, as I found this out and come to find out, you know, all it took was 
to ask for to fill out an application and get a phone interview. And I'm like, wow, you could have told me that in the first place when I was <laughs> yeah. when I was asking you, you know. So these are the type of struggling situations that you'll you'll find. And this is why we say how people are over sometimes overlooked and mm-hmm. undervalued. In these situations, yes, it is stressful. It is a stressful job on your end, too. But, hey, the job has to get done. People need housing. So Um, when you... you, Brian? I need to I need yes. to jump in here. We uh, we have to take a break, uh, but I want to sure. con- obviously uh, I'm I've set aside a lot of time to have this discussion. I'm talking with Mario Tharp, uh, Dan Protus, Jackie Chacon, and Brian Rogers. You uh, will be able to see their work uh, when you go to wttw.com/slash firsthand. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. WTTW is announcing the sixth year of what they call their first-hand initiative, where they take a topic and they look firsthand with the people involved, what's going on. This time, they are focusing on homelessness in Chicago. You can see these documentaries online. There are five of them at WTTW.com firsthand. Joining me now are two of the people involved in making uh, these documentaries. Mario Tharp is a producer and director, Dan Protus, an executive producer. We are also joined by two of the people focused uh, the, the documentaries focused on Jackie Chacon and Brian Rogers, both of whom are struggling, struggling with housing and both of whose lives are are very, very different. Um, Mario, I want to go back to you for a second as the producer and director of this. How did you find the people or maybe I don't know, maybe Dan had a hand in this, too. How did you find the people that you wanted to focus on and. I, you know, I know that the unhoused have many stories. There's lots of different reasons. How did you choose which situations you wanted to focus on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly both Dan and I worked um, hard to to locate the five folks. Um, it was, you know, it, Joan, it wasn't easy. <laughs> I can tell you that. Uh, I mean, what was what was very important to us was to find five different stories that could cover the scope of what it's like to be unhoused. Um, and I think we successfully pulled that off. Um, it was a combination of, of, of talking to a lot of people, of calling a lot of organizations. Uh, Dan uh, made contact with the Knight Ministry, um, and they led us to, um, to Kimberly's story, uh, who's one of the other subjects, as well as Dan, um, Dan Russick's story um so yeah it was it was just a combination of just reaching out and uh calling people sending out emails i i can tell you that there this was a discussion i mean i was able to talk to a lot of people at these nonprofits, and they were super excited that we were doing these documentary stories because they all felt like you know it's time let's shed light on this issue as much as possible so, um, although I was able to speak to a lot of those people at the nonprofits, they didn't necessarily have the right story for us. Um, you know, we looked at, um, you know, issues of like, you know, doubling up and homeless veterans and homeless students. 
Um, I spoke with the president at Malcolm X College, who says that they have a pretty large amount of homeless students, but we just couldn't find the right person that would work for what we were trying to do with this series. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was a lot of hard work, but again, ultimately, the, the five stories that we're here to tell, um, are their stories that just blow you away. And I, I do want to say, Joan, that this will go live on the 19th of February. So Monday is when five stories, as well as the other things that we're doing, um, for the series uh, will go live at wttw.com slash firsthand. I, I needed to add that little bit of information. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to confuse the heck out of listeners who go looking and um, can't find it there. So that's uh, thank you. That's something that I will definitely add, that it is coming live this um, Monday, President's Day, the, the 19th. And um, can you watch... Um, each of these five documentaries separately, Dan, uh, is it or is it packaged as one big program? Yeah, they all launch at the same time, and they're five separate documentaries. Each is about thirty to forty minutes long, and then there's a bunch of other arms of the project. We also have when we do this every year, we have these firsthand talks, which are kind of like TED talks. They're expert talks from experts on the subject who are offering unique uh, solutions to Chicago's homelessness. Uh, One of them, Tracy Bain, uh, is talking in her talk about uh, tiny homes as a possible solution Mm -hmm. and one that I know is being employed in some other municipalities. Um, And then there's also going to be, uh, and this is a year-long initiative firsthand, so there's going to be news stories rolled out over the coming uh, year from WTTW's news division. Um, There's a discussion guide so that people can talk through uh, the documentaries in their own communities. And um, then we're also doing community engagement. So we've got a screening at WTTW Studios Monday night and panel discussion. Uh, Jackie is going to be on that panel with uh, me and Mario. Um, And then every month, I think next month, we're focused on uh, women and homelessness, uh, or maybe that's in in March. Yeah, next month. And then pretty much every month thereafter, we've got something else going on in a different community, uh, including several public library branches. Where do you find out about the talks if you want to attend one of those talks? Well, those talks have already been recorded, and you you oh, I see. They're not like live presentations. They were live, but you had to have been there. So you (laughs) you can watch. Yeah, you can watch them all now at wttw dot com slash firsthand starting Monday. They're on the same website with the documentaries, but the community events are monthly, and you can find out about those uh, at that same website. Okay. Dan, you have been shepherding this whole project along. If I gave you a $40 million check and said, Dan, you've really, man, you know this problem up one side and down the other. Here's $40 million. How do you spend it, Dan Protus? How do you spend it? Wow, that's a really good question. And I I tend to get wonky about these things, and I almost (laughs) wish I had it. I wait, well, I wish I had an economics degree so that I could figure out how that $40 million could be best spent to bring down 
the cost of housing. I mean, I guess building more affordable housing units, I guess you could put the private sector to work by incentivizing them to build affordable housing, although Mm. I think Chicago's got a somewhat checkered uh, record with building affordable housing, uh, taking the private sector route. I mean, you know, the philosophy of this series is that the people who are best equipped to be telling us about about homelessness are people who themselves have experienced homelessness. And that's why we turn to people like Jackie and Brian as the real experts here. And I'll just, in that vein, I'll, I'll, I'll mention that Yolanda, one of our five documentary subjects is living in a tent under a bridge about a hundred yards away from the CHA housing unit where she used to reside. Um, which begs the question, you know, why why was she evicted from the CHA housing unit and why isn't there another CHA housing unit uh, for her to go back to? I hear Brian stirring, uh, and I think he might have some, some additional information. Yes, I'm agreeing. <laughs> go ahead, Brian. Because, um, like you said, you know, that's what needs to be created. I mean, you know, you you tear all of this housing down. These developers, they make the money along the way in certain neighborhoods that they want to invest and disinvest in the neighborhoods that they tore the uh, uh, housing down. So it's like, okay, well, where do you put these people? Okay. Mm -hmm. Now you have an overclogged subsidy system, which needs to be expanded. You know, I mean, people are out here displaced from their subsidized housing, but there was none to replace it. And there's an affordable housing with the AGI index, you know, 30 percent. Most of the people who they put out can't afford to pay that. (laughs) So, again, you know, the few affordable homes that are out here. They can't even afford to live in. So then you get the neighborhood redeveloped. These developers are making all of this money, and it gets swept under the rug, and there's no spot for the person who was put out of CHA housing when they tore them down. Yeah, and as I know I know that a lot of people were displaced when housing gets torn down. But Mario and Dan, it sounds like Yolanda it wasn't uh, kicked out because her building was going to be torn down. What was the reason? I mean, with I know she's uh, from reading about this. I know she had a lot of health issues. You know, was yeah. it she just trying to live off Social Security and she couldn't make the rent? And if and if so, there wasn't any of all the programs we've got. There wasn't anybody to kind of give a little bit of help there to keep her in her house. So hmm. her name, her name was not on the lease, which is, you know, the CHA created this plan for transformation 20, 30 years ago, and um, there was supposed to be a right of return for former CHA residents. Right. And this this was a very common rationale for people being denied housing, um, that they were not on the lease, which was not unusual mm-hmm. in the informal economies that sprouted up in CHA housing. As far as Social Security, she absolutely, I've spent time with this person, she absolutely has a disability, and I could not imagine, given the state of her disability, that she'd be in any condition to work. 
she's been, according to her, I can't, I haven't verified this. She's been denied disability benefits eight or nine times. Um, so, you know, it's many different social safety nets all breaking at the same uh, time. And actually, it would be interesting to bring Jackie into the conversation because you'd asked her about her work situation. Um, Jackie, you, uh, you're still working as a as a bus driver. I mean, she's gainfully employed and is not able to afford uh, market rate housing. Um, I actually um, switched over jobs where I'm no longer working part-time. Now I'm working full-time. And I just started that job almost two months ago. And a big difference of me working part-time and working full-time because now I'm able to save my money, get what I need to get for my apartment because I just signed my lease yesterday. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. After waiting yeah, like five awesome. months on housing, but um, it's a difference between part time and full time. Yeah, so you were able to increase your income stream, um, and therefore you were able you were able to do this. But it sounds like for somebody like Yolanda, um, I mean, if if she's uh, an older woman and already has health issues and was already living in subsidized housing. Um, it doesn't sound like she's really ready to uh, or in any kind of position to rejoin the, the workforce, especially not in something full time. Absolutely not. And, you know, even if you're gainfully employed and it's great to hear that Jackie is full time now, it, it is rent is expensive in mm-hmm. Chicago. There's no two ways about it. And, um, you know, especially if you've got a family to support a family and pay the monthly rent. Um, I think Brian was referring to the percentage of people's income that they're paying toward rent. Mm-hmm. It, it can eat into your what the disposable income left to cover your other expenses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we need to take another break, guys. Um, we are going to continue talking about um, a series of documentaries that will be live to stream this coming Monday. You go to WTTW.com slash firsthand. And there are five documentaries on what it is like to live unhoused in the city of Chicago. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This year, WTTW is doing a multi-pronged effort to illustrate and help us understand the problem of the unhoused in Chicago. This Monday, five documentaries will be available online at WTTW.com slash firsthand. It is a firsthand look at the problem. Joining me now is Mary Tharp, who's the producer and director, uh, Dan Protus, who's an executive producer of this, Jackie Chacon and Brian Rogers, who are the subjects of two of the documentaries because they themselves have been unhoused. We just heard, Brian, that Jackie uh, has now been able to get a full-time job and has just signed a lease on an apartment. Bring us up to speed on where your situation is right now. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, I got involved uh, with CTA Second Chance Program uh, through St. Leonard's, so I was able to secure employment. Um, unfortunately, I had to resign because it, it, it messed my back up. I just couldn't physically actually do it anymore. So, but... On a good note, I still work with uh, Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, and I was recently offered a position there. Uh, so I do a lot of the uh, advocacy work and outreach assistant work for Chicago Coalition for the Homeless. And I, I know that you probably heard about Bring Chicago Home, so that's one of the many things that I work on and work with. So that's what I'm doing now. When you do outreach work and you talk to somebody out on the street who's unhoused, what do you tell them about yourself, and do they trust you more because they've you've been where they are? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, the first thing I do is, you know, I, I find common ground. First thing I do, hey, you know, me and you are no different. The only thing is, is I'm in a program, and I'm one paycheck away from being right here next to you. So, and I tell them, and I go through my story sometimes, just a little chit-chat, and make people feel, you know, that they have some value. And I tell them what I'm doing. And I tell them that, hey, I'm doing this so it can possibly help you. Is it going to change overnight? Nothing changes overnight, not too much at least. But we expect what, what we're working on to make a difference down the road. Once things uh, start, money starts generating, and we can get the new housing bills, such as the tiny homes. We can convert the existing properties um, the CHA owns and, and convert them into um, housing, uh, develop new buildings, and, and pay for support services and expand rental subsidies and make it more accessible to the service providers in a, in a universal data bank, then, yeah, those weights that we were just talking about in those different situations can get cut shorter. We can get people. We can start moving them through the system faster. We can start housing them. That Brian, when you talk provide- to people, when you talk to people on the street, what do what do they want? What do they ask for? I mean, is it just you know, uh, Brian, get me a better tent or warmer blankets, or is there something else? Get I, you know, get a doctor out here. You know, we need I need some medical care. What do the people you talk to? What do they want? What do they feel they need right then and right there? The, the majority of them, what they want right then and there, usually is a place to stay. You know, I a mean, house, just face yeah. it. You sleep. If you're sleeping in a tent or you're sleeping on CTA property or in the, in, in the streets of our downtown section or our communities and it's cold, yeah, you want, you want to be indoors. You want to be in a safe spot that's clean where you don't have to worry about those things, where you can start focusing on other things as far as getting your life together. So if you need those other services uh, that uh, the situations require, say such as the young lady who's living in a tent, who's on who, who we just talked about, if no, you need yeah. services like that, now we can start focusing on those things. Mm-hmm. If we put you somewhere, then we're going to make sure that you have the ability, support of services to maintain that. And it's unfortunate that you know that her situation is that way. Because of the bureaucracy that surrounds the whole issue. So most of them, all they want is a safe spot, clean, 
to stay in, somewhere decent, somewhere nice, some mm-hmm. somewhere to make them feel like, hey, I'm I'm worth it. Yeah, I understand. I understand. Mario, I want to ask you a question. I um, read a, a book a while back. It was a memoir of a doctor in Boston who um, spent most of his practice attending um, the medical needs of those in shelters and the unhoused. And one thing that he wrote about was that he was doing the work for a good six months before people actually trusted him enough to speak with him honestly. Did did you find that kind of, I don't know, fear uh, out on the street that people didn't really want to trust you? They didn't want to share with you the reality? Um, you know, I, I, no, I, I can honestly say I didn't, Joan. I, I think because we're looking at, you know, an issue that, that our five subjects really wanted to talk about. Uh, they felt, they feel that their story um, can help others and can hopefully allow people to understand or get a better look at what it's like to kind of walk in their shoes. Uh, so, no, I, I, I didn't. I, I really found that, especially with Dan, um, my guy, because I was with him so often, we we built a rapport. I mean, I, honestly, I think I have to say that about everybody. I talk to Brian often. I talk to everybody. I talk to Jackie uh, with Yolanda. I've made a commitment to uh, go and visit her once a week, uh, and that started during the week where it was extremely cold here in Chicago, and I felt so bad because I knew she was living on the street. Now, I, I should say that Dan also, he, he has an apartment. Um, that happened after we were done filming. So um, right now, at the present moment, Yolanda's the only one that's still living on the street. Um, so, yeah, I was able to kind of build these relationships with the five subjects, and, um, you know, they just opened up to us. So, no, I didn't. I didn't have any, any issues there, fortunately. Well, that's wonderful. And I don't think the other the other directors did too, because remember, I only I only did one story. I only directed one story, but we had four other directors, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I spoke to them often as well. And I I don't, I don't think they had any issues. Uh, so yeah, I think we were good. In that, Jackie, that was standpoint. it was it weird having a, a a camera crew recording everything? Yes, it was a little awkward, a little weird. After a while, were you able to forget about them, or was it weird every every time? Uh, after a while, we got used to it, and we just continued about our, you know, our day, and just ignored it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and Brian, same with you. Uh, yeah, at first, like, you know, sometimes you you know the different shot, you know, the equipment is right there, and I was like, hey, yeah, <laughs> you know, like it, I felt like I wanted to say, hey, could you move that out the way? <laughs> but <laughs> after. Um, we started doing all the different events, and they were following me around. It was like, I was like, so y'all coming today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, welcoming it. <laughs> well, so, it is yeah, it's so yeah, wonderful it. <laughs> of the two of you to share your stories with us and to share your stories um, with uh, the crews from WTTW. Um, Mario, thank you for being here. Dan, uh, I really hope that this discussion 
enlightens people and brings more people to the table to watch your documentaries, which, again, are not up right now, but will be this Monday, February 19th, WTTW.com slash firsthand. Thank you all so, so very much for doing this work, for sharing your lives and letting the rest of us know about something that we kind of feel like we know about, but we don't really know about. And uh, mm-hmm. there's no better way to learn than by walking a mile in somebody's shoes. Uh, Mario, Dan, Jackie, Brian, thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thanks. Thank you, John. Thank you as well, Joe. <laughs> my my pleasure. Um, there's, yes. there's um, you know, you can learn a lot from, from books and films, but documentaries they're in a class by themselves because uh it is real life it is absolutely real life and if you really want to know about an issue you really have to learn about the issue through people and their experiences and what this issue does or doesn't mean to them and how it affects their lives um there's nothing that can compare with a really great story that is true this Monday, WTTW.com slash firsthand. We'll be back with more right after the news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It is Thursday, and you know what that means. That means the Pickian Sentinel comes out. Eric Zorn's publication, something that he has thrown himself into since leaving the Chicago Sun-Times. We uh, subscribe to the Picayune Sentinel. You, If you are a subscriber, you get Tuesday editions as well as Thursday editions. And uh, whenever he is not working on other things, Eric joins us to talk about uh, what is in today's edition. Mr. Zorn, how are you? I'm really good. I, I want to make one correction. I was at the Tribune at the Sun-Times. I, I love oh, my did I say Sun-Times? Sun- you did, but I, Dear I love God. my God. I know, I know. You know, that was right, probably though. because in the break I was looking at the Sun-Times website, and, you know, um, I guess I'm in the same category as Joe Biden. I, You know, uh, my brain doesn't catch up to my mouth, or one, yeah. or my mouth is ahead of my brain. I don't know which it, one it is. It happens to those of us at a certain age, doesn't it? Well, you know what? It's happened to me my whole life. So, you know, it's like I told you, I think uh, that I was interviewing uh, former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh. And he said, you know, it's been a long time since I was on Capitol Hill and I knew Joe Biden then. And I can tell you it's the same Joe Biden. He used to stumble and bumble and forget things back then. So, you know, people are like throwing their hands up like somehow this is a degradation of what he used to be. He said he's the same guy that I went was uh, on Capitol Hill with. Which made me so, feel a little bit better. <laughs> so, so I'm I'm going to mark you down for a uh, relax. Biden is fine. I've He's already voted, scam. and yes, that is exactly how I voted. Tell the listeners about the okay. poll. Well, so what I did was I, I've been hearing these various reactions from my friends on the left and and uh, my enemies on the right uh, about Joe Biden, and I so I decided I would I would put sort of five common sentiments about Biden up for a vote. Which which one best reflects your point of view? Yours and yours is the uh, the fifth one, which is relax. Biden is fine. He has a stammer. His voice is weak with age, but he's all there. More than up to continuing to do the job that he's done very well since January of 2021. 
everyone forgets things now and then. And as spring and summer lead to the fall, we're going to see that he's cognitively miles ahead of Trump, both mentally and physically vigorous enough to serve until he is 86. And (laughs) I will tell you that right now in the voting, that is the choice of 35 percent, the the, uh, plurality, 35 percent, the number one vote getter of of my readers. Four percent of my readers said no way, no how. They would never vote for for Joe Biden. And I I, uh, know that my readership does skew pretty strongly to the left, and I'm I'm fine with that. Uh, Option number two was sadly no. I would vote for Biden if I thought he was mentally fit to continue as president. But if he's on the ballot, I'll vote for another candidate. Like who, Joe Kennedy? I don't know. Or well, you know, Marianne it's, Williamson dropped out. I, who would you vote for? I, um, Cornell West. I don't know. I'll yeah. vote for another candidate or I'll sit out the election. Well, it's interesting that you say that you think that the the one I voted for is winning because most of your um, readership skews left. I would have said that that uh, choice is winning because perhaps – most of your readership is in, or at least the ones that answered the same, is in my demographic. <laughs> well, I'm in your demographic, Joan. Let me tell you, this is uh, so. So I've got, I've got right now. I've got a thousand and four votes on this. So that's that's pretty. It's a, you know, it's not a scientific poll, obviously, but but uh, I was number three, and this is number three, uh, the middle option. Uh, reluctantly, yes. Biden has been a darn good president. I'm grateful he's been in the White House these last three years. I'd vote for him over Trump or Nikki Haley, even if he were in a coma. <laughs> he, ought to ret- he ought to retire and make way for the next generation of Democratic leadership. His halting delivery and seemingly porous memory are inauspicious and seem likely to tamp down voter enthusiasm that his party needs to defeat the frightening Trump. Recent ABC News Ipsos poll found 73 percent of Democrats think Biden is too old to continue as president and his spokespeople and surrogates should stop gaslighting the public with assurances that this suffocating majority is wrong and that Biden is all there mentally sharp, focused and on the ball. And if that is actually the case, then blanket the damn airwaves with illustrative video and have him sit down for some challenging interviews. Show, don't tell. And I've got to say, I was disappointed that he did not take the opportunity to demonstrate his his acuity uh, in an interview before the Super Bowl. He was offered that. CBS offered him that. Uh, uh, Eric, I think that that was such a big misstep. I, I just can't. I've talked to some uh, Democratic strategists and political reporters, and we are scratching our heads. How do you turn down an audience of a hundred million people that especially in an in in you know when you know you have a you have a wide ranging crowd this isn't a campaign stop where everybody already loves you this is a chance to make an impression on people who may be waffling or are undecided i don't understand that can can you give me any if you were a biden advisor why would you say you know what let's skip this super bowl thing why what would be the upside well I don't, I don't, I guess the upside is, and this is what I was getting at earlier, is that he doesn't present that well. And you've said, you know, he's, he's always been Joe Biden. He stammers. He's got kind of a weak voice. He tends to trail off. He loses his train of thought. And, uh, that doesn't, he doesn't have that kind of presence that maybe you might want in a, in a, in a leader. That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, the excuse they came up with was something like, well, 
it's a football day and people don't want to be in football. Yeah, people want don't want politics. Their- there, and, and it, but it wouldn't have to be necessarily politics. I'm, I'm sure that the interview would have uh, involved things like, you know, what's your favorite food to watch while watching the game? And what do you think of this Taylor Swift stuff? And who are you rooting for? And I, it, would, it would not have been, mm-hmm. you know, let's talk about Ukraine policy. They probably would have asked him some, some tough questions. But he gets those questions all the time at news conferences. I think he, it would have been a really good opportunity for him to sort of try to get people to set aside some of these worries. As I say, I don't think he's he's still got his fastball, uh, but he is still. I think he is still pretty sharp, um, and I think he can demonstrate that. But I want to see it, and the public wants to see it. When you've got a poll showing that, like a seventy-three percent of Democrats, something like eighty-six percent of all voters. I, I don't even count Republicans in this because I don't really care what they think about Joe Biden because they they would not vote for him anyway. And this is mm-hmm. the. Uh, number one option. They wouldn't vote for him anyway, so I don't care what they think about him. But, but I, I do care a lot about what Democrats feel and whether Democrats are energized. they got to get out to the polls. I think the Democrats are counting on this election just being, we have to stop Donald Trump. Donald Trump is, is a traitor and he's dangerous and he's a criminal and we've got we to keep him out of the White House. The, the future of our country and our democracy relies on it. And that would be enough to get me out to the polls, but there are a lot of people who don't care or who don't believe it. Or, I mean, I don't know why people stay home on Election Day, but they do. I don't either. Especially you know, for the presidential <clears throat> race. So, so, you, so you have that. Yeah. So, so the, 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 this race is not about arguing with Trump people and telling people that Trump is a bad guy. And I mean, Trump people mm-hmm. are Trump people and they're going to vote for him. And, and not much you can do. I mean, when he said he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, he's going to be convicted in a court of law. In all likelihood, by this time this election comes up, he's got the trial date was just set today. What for? Sometime in March. Yeah, he's going to be he's going to be a convict, and his supporters would vote for him. So the idea that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and have and not lose any support is kind of close to true. Yeah, and, oh, absolutely, so, it's close to so, true. I mean, he's so a, he's been ruled by a judge that he sexually assaulted a woman, not just that tape, grab him by the privates, but he actually, the judge said, you, we're not here to talk about that. That's already been established. You sexually assaulted her. We're just trying to figure out how much money you're going to have to have to pay her. That didn't slow anybody down. He's the man is, you mean, they used to call Gotti the Teflon Don. Hey, I'm telling you, uh, uh, Gotti could have taken lessons from Trump. Um, uh, uh, another another Teflon Don. Yeah, no, yeah. You're, you're right. And uh, so, so this election is going to boil down to enthusiasm. It's going to boil down to Democratic voters being motivated to get out because of the threats that Donald Trump poses. Uh, it's going to involve voters coming out to support women's right to choose. It's going to involve, you know, just just those kind of issues are going to have to get people out to the polls because, as as uh, other people have said, if you don't vote for Biden this time, you may not get a chance to vote for anybody again. So yeah. you got to watch out. And, and so that, that's why I, I really think it's up to the, his campaign strategists and so on to, to reassure people who are on the fence or who, who, who like Biden enough, but they're, you know, they don't want to get out and vote for him. They, and they'll, they're looking for, like I said, Cornell West or, or a Joe Kennedy or some, or, uh, you know, well, not Joe Kennedy. Uh, What's the Kennedy? Robert F. Robert Kennedy, Kennedy Jr. Ro- Robert Kennedy Jr. Yeah. They're looking for, they're looking for, a, for, for a, an alternative candidate. And, you know, those votes are just thrown away. That's a waste. Yeah, ab- and, absolutely. And, have, and so the, to raise the stakes of the election is really important, to convince people that the Biden economy is a pretty good economy uh, and that uh, we need to 
defend Ukraine, uh, that we can't just let Putin have his way. And, and what Tucker Carlson has been saying over in Russia and what Trump has been saying about NATO, that stuff is scary. That stuff mm-hmm. is like – that is, the, that is the end of the alliance. That's the uh, perhaps the end of the EU. If you, he says we're going to sit back and let Putin take hunks of Europe away, I mean, this is this is uh, historically bad, uh, and and lessons that we should have learned back in the 30s, and that we did learn in the 30s, and I thought we had learned in the 30s, and that uh, Donald Trump didn't uh, pay attention in school, I guess. I have a question for you, and first of all, uh, to my audience, I want to preface this with. I am a good Democrat, and I think that there are a lot of people who do good work. I also happen to think that in this country, we have uh, some problems with race and some problems with misogyny. And I think one thing that I think the Republicans are going to go after is, well, we all know that Biden can't possibly, even if he wins, he can't possibly last for an entire four-year term. So let's look at this as, do you want President Harris, do you want Kamala Harris to be president? So would Joe Biden be a stronger candidate with some people if uh, Kamala um, walked away and was replaced with someone uh, let's just throw out Gavin Newsom. You know, he's tall, he's handsome, he's white. We like our presidents to be that way. What do you think? If there was a change at the bottom of the ticket, do you think it would assuage some nervous voters? Well, you say some people. Yes, definitely some people would, would do that. The, the question is you would also, I think, lose uh, a lot of African-American votes that if you throw uh, – Kamala Harris to the side. I'm not exactly sure. Well, I think I am sure. I think I do know what the problem people have with Kamala Harris is, is that she's a, a woman of color. And those are two things, being a woman and being a person of color, that, that uh, there are great swaths of the electorate that uh, they reject that. And it's, it's and as a, a, a vice president, you don't really get to strut your stuff. You are always in a position where your job is to support the president, not get any real limelight or attention for yourself. Yeah, I, I would like to know exactly what the what the brief is against Kamala Harris. I see some conservative commentators who I will not name who like to use Kamala Harris, like to throw this out, like President Harris, like like she's this horrible thing. And I'm thinking, what is this a dog? I mean, I I, I don't even ask. I know what it is. It's it's a, it's a racist, sexist dog whistle. Let's be honest. Uh, you know, she she's a perfectly fine, moderate Democrat for all you know for all I. Learned about her in the in the campaign in 2020, she wasn't a great candidate. That'd be more. That's more my concern is that she, she wasn't really all that great on the stump and wasn't all that great in debates. But she won with Biden the first time. I'm not terrified by a Kamala Harris presidency. I, I'm not terrified by a Biden presidency at all. I think I think uh, you know th- these are these are norm normal people in that they will surround themselves with sound advisors and will advance policies that uh, that I would favor and I'm sure you would favor as well so so you so don't think it would that, make any difference if oh um, well well I if Gavin I, Newsom I, I, suddenly was if Kamala said oh you know um I've just decided that I've had enough of this crap and I'm stepping away from political life if she if she legitimately convinced people that it was something she wanted to do, and if somebody else was brought in, do you think it would increase the likelihood that Biden would get more of those low information or middle of the road voters? Uh, 
I would say yes. I would say what I know of the people in this country and how they react to people of color and women, uh, that that's probably the case. Um, I don't think it's going to happen. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, people have talked about, well, maybe maybe Biden should step aside and then have, have someone like Gretchen Whitmer or Gavin Newsom or J.B. Pritzker take his place on the ticket. Uh, you know, I don't know what what motivates those people who are right in the middle. It's hard. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Someone who can't decide between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. That uh, undecided voters puzzle me in a, in a race like this. I mean, I, there, there are races where the candidates are are, are somewhat similar. Are, are, are the contrasts are interesting, and you can say, well, I don't know. This candidate gives me this, and this candidate gives me that. The uh, the race for Cook County State's Attorney right now is one of those where you think, like, well, this guy, this guy, and uh, this this woman, and uh, you know, the, you can sort of see how you could really be undecided. I'm still undecided in that race. I want I want to read more. I want to learn more about it. But those candidates are very similar. These these two candidates, two likely candidates at the top of the ticket, are dramatically different. And how could you how could you be in the middle? Go, well, I have a little I, I bit of insight into that acquired recently. We have uh, a young friend whose uh, parents are white, upper middle class suburban people, and uh, she confided in us recently that they both say that they're going to vote for Trump because, and buckle up for this one, because Trump does so well for the economy. And if Joe Biden gets a second term, the economy will go to hell. Now, the only thing I can think of is that they have simply absorbed Fox talking points, because as you and I both know, even before COVID hit, Trump was running the economy into the ground. It was like trillion dollars worth of debt he racked up before COVID hit. And Biden has turned things around the economy, jobs um, everywhere you look. But they said quite sincerely that they were going to vote for Trump because if a Biden gets reelected, the economy will just will just tank. Don't, and well, Trump is so good for the economy. So well, you tell me where that comes right. from. These are well-educated, comfortable people who, by all accounts, should know better. Well, it circles back to what I was saying earlier, which is that I don't think that you can talk those people out of supporting Trump. There's something about Trump, I believe, that that viscerally excites people like that. And so they look for reasons to believe that. And they'll say, well, look at the price of uh, of uh, great grain cereal on your grocery shelves. You know, that's like, it's appalling. It's 10 bucks a box. And it wasn't that way under Trump. Therefore, Biden's been bad for the economy. Therefore, I'm going to vote for Trump. I mean, that that is nonsense in so many ways. Inflation is is down. Now, the rate of inflation is down. You still have the effects of, of several uh, periods of high inflation. You're not going to talk these people into feeling something that they don't about the economy. You're not going to talk them out of this, this gut feeling they have that Trump is a strong man and they want a strong man leading the country. And so you have to excite people. You have to motivate people to get out and vote whose identities are threatened by Donald Trump, whose, whose democratic rights are threatened, whose reproductive rights are threatened. You have to motivate those people because you're not, your friends are not going to be talked out of voting for Trump. You can show them all the charts and graphs you want. <sighs> they're not going to believe it. They're just not going to. And I've kind of given up on that. I mean, I, I do a lot of uh, arguing with people in my uh, uh, semi-professional life here, and I, don't, I, don't, I have decided that that's just not really a possibility. And that the answer here is going to be make sure that your 
democratic friends and your sensible mm-hmm. friends and your educated friends who actually are paying attention to the news and not to Fox News get out and vote. Uh, that's the answer. And I, I think that when they do, they will see that, that um, Biden is the best uh, is, is the best choice by far. I, I worry some about the um, the border issue being one that has people quite upset. And it was interesting, the, the special election in New York State this week, uh, the, the, uh, the Democrats leaned into the Democratic candidate there, whose name I cannot pronounce. Swozy. Uh, Swozy, okay, thank you. Uh, it, uh, Swozy, he, he leaned into the idea that the Democrats did, they, they gave up a lot for this border bill that the Republicans essentially crafted in the Senate, and that the Democrats do want to do something about the border, and the Republicans are stopping them from doing something about it because they want it as a campaign issue. And that seemed to resonate with voters. Mm-hmm. There were voters who were, who were like, well, wait a minute, we're concerned about the border too. And and yet, and we feel like the Democrats do want to try something here, and the Republicans are just not doing anything because they're playing politics with it. Yeah. Uh, somebody made a pretty good point, I thought, on social media, saying that if Republicans were really serious about immigration stuff, they wouldn't worry about what's going on right at the border. They would crack down hard on those who are employing uh, the immigrants, who are making it so attractive for them to come into the country, they would find them. They would make sure that they are uh, are paying a heavy penalty for for employing the people who are coming across the border. But they don't, because those are their constituents. Those are the people who they who are who are voting for them. These are these are uh, you know they're, they're businesses that are that are uh, getting cheap labor, and uh, and that's what they want. And so they and they don't really want. They don't really care about the border. They just care about the issue. And I think exactly. that that message may get through. That message may get through. I certainly and hope I so. think it's. With this, it's interesting because you and I know that there have been lots of unpleasant political deals made uh, in smoke-filled rooms with the doors closed. But this happened out in front of everything. You know, Republican senators, senators were saying, Donald Trump called me and he doesn't want this to pass because he doesn't want to look, make it look like Joe Biden has achieved any kind of victory, that he's doing anything on the issue. And I thought it was really interesting for um, when um, Mr. Swozy, after he won, there was a CNN reporter who had been talking to people as they went in and out of the polling place. And she said, she, and I thought this was showed a, a level of sophistication you don't often hear from voters. She said, people are telling me re- that they are normally, some people have said, I'm normally a Republican, but this time I'm voting for the Democrat because the Republicans don't seem to be able to govern. They don't seem to be able to get anything done. And I think that that's something that the Democrats, rather than Trump is bad, Trump is bad, Trump is bad, I think a big talking point should be Look at these people. They tell us one thing. We give them that. Then they pull it back. And and now, you know, you got Mike Johnson saying, well, he can't pass a supplemental aid package because there's nothing about the border in it. And, you know, you just makes your head want to explode. Not only that, um, um, uh, Alex back at the studio has a Manu Raju was reporting for CNN on the congressional floor. And I, I want to share with you this uh, short little sound clip. Go ahead, Alex, play that. 
in the House GOP is devolved into finger-pointing and internal chaos in the aftermath of Kevin McCarthy's ouster in October and really having a difficult time putting together any sort of agenda here. And there are such huge issues here, Dana, confronting this majority, not just dealing with Ukraine aid and Israel aid, how to deal with the border. The Speaker saying that he would not accept the Senate's proposal to provide $95 billion in emergency aid to U.S. allies overseas, all part of the GOP infighting that many members are concerned about will hurt them in November. It's I think people are getting the message. And I think this is a strong talking point for Democrats in 2024. Thoughts, Eric? Yeah, I agree. No, and and, and, you know, it was Harry Truman who ran against a do-nothing Congress, and I I think that Biden can run against a do-nothing, at least do-nothing House for sure. That they're not getting anything done. I mean, they 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 managed to impeach Mayorkas this week, uh, finally, uh, which is a completely useless and utterly symbolic Mm -hmm. act, and it only symbolizes how feckless they are because it's going to go if if they ever even have a trial in the Senate. There's no chance in hell he's going to be convicted. It's a policy dispute that they're turning into an impeachment. And I think that the basic reason is they want to weaken the idea of what impeachment means so that it weakens the charge against Trump that he's the only twice impeached president uh, in the nation's history. But but uh, they are not doing getting anything done at all in the House. And, and at some point, at some point, they, they, there is business that needs to be done. There's mm-hmm. climate that needs to be addressed. There are allies in trouble that need to be addressed. There are all sorts of issues that the peop- the public wants addressed, and they don't want this infighting. And, if I were the Democrats, I would be running that Mitt Romney soundbite. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've certainly heard it. I don't know if you've got it handy, but where they interview him about Trump and his his unwillingness to deal with this with this uh, border bill, and talking about what a disgrace it is. And this is this is Mitt Romney. This is the party's standard bearer in, in 2012. And and uh, I would just be running that over and over again and reminding <laughs> people that this, that this party is off the rails. And when you're voting for a Republican congressman or a senator. Uh, or a governor, or God forbid the president, that that's the party you're voting for. And, and this is not the Republican Party that I knew like 20 years ago. I mean, I didn't like George W. Bush, but he wasn't crazy. Yeah. And this party is really, this party is deranged right now, I think. I mean, I, I, they've just, they're in the thrall of this cult leader. And they have just it's it's uh, it's it's baffling to me. It's not just like we well, we differ on taxes and we differ on. Yeah, on, this isn't. On the yeah, these aren't policy disputes. This isn't. We both see a common goal, but want to approach it in completely different ways. No, that's not what this is. No, not anymore. It, it, it isn't. It isn't like well, you know, you, you, we the Republicans, the Republicans of my of my youth and my uh, I think other parties says like we well, we believe that the trickle down economics and we believe in in uh, in small government. We believe in fewer regulations. And the Democratic Party is more. We believe in in uh, in you know minimum, higher minimum wages. I mean, you know, you know all mm-hmm. the policy disputes. Mm-hmm. We, we mm-hmm. believe in in, uh, in taxing the rich more than in progressive taxation. All those sort of things. Those are policy differences. Reasonable people can differ on them. I think I've always found um, there's 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 uh, plenty of opportunity for debate and discussion and productive conversation and compromise. But we're just not there right now because yeah. the Republicans are just you know off the rails. Yeah. I mean, uh, Donald Trump wants to be an autocrat. He wants to be a dictator. He loves Putin. Uh, he loves Xi. He, uh, Xi. He loves the the, uh, uh, the 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 strong man, the dictators, the Orban. He he's like he's. Uh, uh, he's not an American president that, yeah. that we can look up to, and it's uh, it's very disheartening and scary. And, and like I say, the, the we got to turn the uh, election into a fright show. You got to get people motivated to get out there and do that. 
I'm talking to Eric Zorn. It's Thursday. The Picayune Sentinel is out. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Eric Zorn. We are talking about today's issue of his newsletter, The Picayune Sentinel. And Eric, you uh, wrote something today that I've said in several different interviews and uh, revisited it today because, of course, uh, there was a Hoppin City Council meeting. Um, shot spotter. Recently, Mayor Brandon Johnson said he was canceling the contract. Uh, he said it, uh, he waited till kind of the last minute. And as he was announcing the cancellation of the contract, said that, oh, but they wanted to continue to use it through uh, the DNC visit this August. And that, to me, was very strange, because if you're just trying to fulfill a campaign promise, fine, if you're making a political decision. But if you actually think the technology is bad and want to cancel the contract, which is, I think, how it should be done, then you don't need to continue it because you don't think the technology is good. And if you're saying I'm canceling the contract, but oh, yeah, we got this really big thing coming up. And yeah, I kind of want to I kind of want it to be still working for that. Then to me, you are undermining your very own decision either. And it's interesting because the company that owns ShotSpotter, I've been reading a lot today that they might just say, you know what? No, uh uh-uh. We're not going to extend through the summer. You want us to continue to monitor our technology? You want to continue to use our technology? Well, then, you know, sign a new contract. It's like um, fish or cut bait. Um, And a lot of people who talk about ShotSpotter use the example of the killing of Adam Toledo, which to me is ridiculous You know, there's a lot of arguments you can make against this technology that supposedly hears gunshots and sends cops racing to whatever that site is. But in this particular instance, it worked like it was supposed to work. Shots were being fired. Officers were dispatched. What unfolded was tragic beyond belief, but the technology itself wasn't to blame. And I know you've taken the position that if you're going to criticize ShotSpotter, the shooting of Adam Toledo doesn't seem to be where you want to be. Would yeah, you talk- I, I, yeah. Yes, every story about this that I've read, just about every story, talks about how the Adam Toledo incident was the one that really got uh, got activists all riled up about ShotSpotter, and that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, and just to review for listeners who don't remember the story, remember the details, it was on March 29th, 2021, 2.35 in the morning. Uh, Adam Toledo, who's 13, and a 20-year-old companion were out on the streets and nine gunshots were fired, approximately nine gunshots were fired at a car. And uh, the shot spotter picked it up and the police rushed to the scene and they were able to um, to detain uh, the the shooter. And, and Adam Toledo, the 13-year-old, had a gun in his hand and he ran away from the cop. And the cop, uh, Officer Eric Stillman, chased after him down an alley. And, uh, and as Adam was, was running away, he took the gun in his hand and he, where they went by a fence and he discarded the gun and in sort of in one motion he threw the gun behind the fence and then he turned, wheeled around with his hands up. And the officer, apparently, I mean, I think, thought that he still had the gun in his hand and he fired and he killed him. 
And it was tragic. I mean, if the kid's 13 and people are, you know, go on social media and say, well, he was a gangbanger and he was a thug. And that's, and, you know, that may be true that he may have been involved in the gang life. He may have been involved in, in, in the criminal life. At, day, at 13, it's not unthinkable for, for kids to be involved in, in pretty nasty stuff. It's true. But it, it also, anytime a 13 year old is involved in stuff like that, it's a, it's a tragedy because, you mm-hmm. know, something has really gone wrong. To have a 13-year-old in that situation, out in the middle of the night, uh, involved with, with gangs and guns and so on. And so just his life up to that point before he's killed, his life is pretty tragic. Yeah. Uh, it was un- an unnecessary shooting by the police officer, clearly. He didn't have a gun in his hand when he shot him. Uh, the officer pretty obviously thought he still did have a gun. It was a, a terrible mistake that the officer made. Uh, but it doesn't implicate ShotSpotter. ShotSpotter did, as you said, it did exactly what it's supposed to do. It said, "Here are the gun, here are the gun, fi- the gun's being fired. Here it is. Get over there." They react faster than than uh, than other emergency services. And 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 the complaint is that that most of the time that ShotSpotter goes off, it does not result in any kind of arrest or even a, 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 a finding of a gun or anything like that. But that's by that logic, you would get rid of nine one one because most calls to nine one one. Uh, of crime in a neighborhood and so on, they, the cops get there and the, and the problem has dispersed and people are gone. And uh, you know, with, with gunfire, the people hear the cops coming and they and they run and and so on. So it's it's it, I don't really know what to make of it except I know that uh, that uh, you know the, the police superintendent is all in favor of it and uh, a, a lot of the the alder alders are in favor of it uh, that they feel like it's it's something that helps them. And uh, clearly, Brandon Johnson and his people seem to think that it does something because they don't want to get rid of it over the summer when there's a lot of a lot of shooting, and and uh, and they don't want to get rid of it during the Democratic National Convention because that they want things to be safer then. So, I it, it looks like a really political decision on the part of the mayor that he he is trying to uh, uh, soothe his base and give his base what they want and live up to a campaign promise and. Um, but you know, I Not, think if yeah. if indeed he got in there and saw things differently, even if even if saying you're getting rid of ShotSpotter was a great talking point and got him lots of votes, okay, you get in there. I think people would understand if he would say, "Look, guys, I said I was opposed to this, but I've seen the data now, and I'm telling you that while it ain't perfect." This is a valuable tool, and it makes, I believe, it is going to make our neighborhoods safer. Uh, Cops want this. They think that it makes their job better, that they can serve you better. I think that people, while certainly... Uh, certainly there were progressives that would say, oh, my God, and would throw up their hands. I think the vast majority of people would understand that. But when you say, well, we're going to get rid of it, uh, except, guys, would you please stay uh, while we host the Democratic National Convention? It completely undermines his act of getting rid of it. Well, yeah, and I, I, it's hard for me to believe that the shot spotter people uh, were willing to give up six months of revenue in a snit over the but apparently but apparently there's something in the contract i read i don't know who fran spielman or somebody wrote this there's something in the contract that permits 
uh, two extensions, which we've already utilized, but no more than two. It's not it's it's, uh, it's like you can extend this contract twice more uh, two times. But after that, it has to be a whole new contract. That's apparently part of what's going on. Well, and it's clearly amateur hour on the fifth floor of City Hall if they didn't have this deal nailed down before they made the announcement that they were getting rid of the of the technology. Right. I mean, you want the mayor, the mayor should not be blindsided by the by the company telling Marianne Ahern or whoever they told yesterday that they weren't going to um, re- extend the contract with the mayor. The mayor came out and said they were going to do it. And then but he had didn't have anything signed, didn't have a deal. He just said it. And, uh, and and that's just bad. That's just bad management, bad politics. So. So, yeah, I, I don't quite understand I mean, why he's doing it, what he's what he's doing it, and I am much more interested in what the alders and what the citizens of the neighborhoods that are most impacted by gun violence, what they think, what they want. Well, because I, you know, people, I'm I don't know. Based I don't on reporting from yeah. um, the Trib, um, Chris Taliaferro, Anthony Beal, David Moore, Silvana Tabares have all said that they think that getting rid of ShotSpotter is a mistake. Right. And, and I, I, I think, think, Spis- of- I think at today's meeting, I think Spisato came out and said the same thing. Well, Spisato, yeah. Yeah, but, I know, but, I know. But, uh, but, but uh, those, those others, it's, it's quite interesting. And uh, I think Father Flager is also in favor of keeping it. Uh, I just like, I feel like, I wonder what the stakeholders think. I live on the northwest side. I don't know that we have ShotSpotter up here. Um, we might. I haven't heard anything about it in my neighborhood. Uh, and so I don't, I don't feel like it's something that, that motivates me as a, as, a, as a resident of Chicago who lives in a neighborhood that's not particularly impacted by gun violence. But there are neighborhoods that really are. And those – it reminds me a little bit of this controversy about cops in schools. Mm-hmm. You know, that the mayor said that police officers don't belong in schools. He's um, – and and uh, there may be situations where they don't belong in schools, but I hear from parents and I read stories from parents and administrators and principals who think that they do need these resource officers in the schools, that they do help, that they help the relationship between the students and the police, that they're not just arresting them, but they are they are bridging this relationship between, mm-hmm. between the police and the, and the community. And here's another area where I think Brandon Johnson made a mistake. We have a... We know there was a policy put in place. You know, let the local school councils decide. If the parents who have kids in the school and some of them have said, yes, we still want a police presence. And there it was. Some local school councils got together and said, no, we don't want a a police presence. And that's, I think, a great way to do this. Brandon Johnson could have just left it alone. He didn't need to jump into this and say, well, I'm getting rid of it. Because what about, you know, what about the schools where parents actually wanted a police presence? I I see him making so many strange mistakes. Uh, You know, I've never been in elected office, and I've heard people say that the job of being mayor of Chicago is too big for any one person. So maybe this guy just has a fire hose of information and questions coming at him 24-7, and... but. Honest to God, he's making mistakes that that I can see, and I don't know anything about the job and how politics really functions. And I'm like, dude, you know, it's like he's creating problems for himself that didn't have to be there. 
Yeah, no, I don't. I don't understand why he would want the job of mayor of Chicago. It seems like a, just an incredibly difficult thing. I mean, you know, he's bad, he had to deal with this this migrant challenge that that uh, has been the sort of wrench into his policy ideals, the same way that COVID was to Mayor Lightfoot. That uh, you know, but but this is what happens when you're a, a leader like this. You get thrown into situations that you didn't anticipate. Although although you know the migrant. The migrant situation was was certainly brewing last year at this time, and so when he was running, he knew that this was going, this was happening. But but it's a overwhelmingly tough job. But he styles himself as a collaborator, as someone who who listens to people and brings people together. But he's not really following through on that right now. He he has some accomplishments, uh, certainly with the you know the tip minimum wage and, and things like that. But he's not. When you come to these issues that are that are divisive, uh, and I, mean, I, I thought that, I thought that, that this idea of, of the, the city council weighing in on the crisis in Gaza was, I, I mean, I, it's it's just like I don't know why you would have to do that because the city needs to come together, and that was it was like you know it's twenty four twenty four vote or twenty three twenty three that he 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 came in clearly a very evenly divided council, a very divisive issue, and we're wasting not just time but we're wasting like emotional uh, energy and goodwill with one another to put this forward in a symbolic, meaningless resolution. And with this thing like with, with the uh, elected school board where he was in favor, all in favor of an elected school board when he's, when he's uh, an activist with a CTU and when he's running for mayor. Then once he gets to be mayor and he realizes, hey, wait a minute, I'm a CTU guy. Mm-hmm. And I get to appoint the school board. And do I really want to put all this up to election? No, I, I only want half of them elected right now. Um, and it's just, it's one of those things where I feel like he's not, he's not as collaborative as he wants to think or he wants to say that he is. And these two issues, those cops in schools and, and the, and the shot spotter, I think these are issues where you need to do more listening than, than proclaiming. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> it might be that you would have, Areas of the city that would have shot spotter and areas that would not, the communities that don't want it. Uh, but this is something that I think you, you want to ask the, the, uh, citizens. You want to ask the, the police officers who have to deal with this stuff. You, you want, you know, you, just, you don't want to, uh, just say, well, I made this promise and the activists really want it. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's where I am with him right now. I feel like he needs to live up to the campaign promise that he's a collaborative, Mayor who listens and is transparent. I, I hear he took questions today. I was, I was, uh, well, not that was another involved. thing. And you know what? I want to talk about this. We need to take a break. Um, we're going to go back to our discussion of today's Chicago City Council meeting and our mayor right after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Eric Zorn. It's Thursday. The Picayune Sentinel newsletter comes out on Thursday, and there's always lots to talk about. We have been talking about uh, Chicago's mayor and the city council, and uh, Eric touched on this. You know, that's always, at least with Lori Lightfoot, it was always a tradition after the city council meeting is over, she meets with members of the media. Um, it was announced out of the blue today that Brandon Johnson would not today be uh, taking questions, even though in the, I'm on the list for the city notices. When the notice went out this morning about the city council meeting, it said there would be a media availability after the city council meeting. 
So a lot of people were posting on social media, like, what's going on? And then Marianne Ahern belatedly posted that there had been a change again and that the mayor said that at some time today he would be taking questions. Uh, so I don't really know what the heck that was about, Eric. Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. There, there seemed to be a, some kerfuffle on social media, and then they changed directions. And I'm not sure what that was about. But then I, I was following social media during the uh, Q and A, and the reporters were apparently very pretty aggressive. And he was evasive. That he, he he's very good at word salad, and mm-hmm. uh, well, very good. He's uh, he serves up a lot of word salad. Let's say. And uh, he was not giving direct answers to questions, and uh, so the, the frustration was boiling over. I think his his honeymoon, if you ever have one with the media, is is over. And uh, I, you know, I don't I don't know exactly wh- where the course correction needs to come in, but it, it feels to me that he doesn't. He's not surrounding himself with people who know how to work the, the public relations angle. I mean, and it, it sounds like you know. Flackery or something like that, but but there are ways. Whether you have people who are who know how the media works, know how to feed the media beast, who know how to to uh, help that the communication and, and communication is not just about burnishing your own your own uh, qualifications and your own accomplishments, but it, it's about it's about talking to your constituents, hearing from them. It's a two way street, and using the media to to facilitate that. He doesn't have those people around him. He has this fairly aggressive. Uh, group of advisors around him, Jason Lee, who seems to revel in fighting with journalists. And I just don't think that's a way to go. I think you've, you've got – I know some of these reporters pretty well who cover City Hall, and I certainly respect the work of, of a lot of them, uh, like, like Heather Sharon. I think you and I know, are friends with her. And, and mm-hmm. you know, she, she's a, an, an honest, straight-shooting reporter, and you know, the Tribune's A.D. Quigg and Fran Spielman, all, all those people, um, Alcian, Gregory Pratt, uh, they're all – Solid reporters who want to tell the truth, uh, and they're going to ask tough questions. And you you learn to to uh, to deal with them, and to talk to them, and to get, and he doesn't seem to know how to do that yet. That is still sort of ad- adversarial in his approach to things. And um, I, you know he he does have uh, you know, it's three it's three years to the next election right about now right it's maybe mm-hmm. February and three years he's got time to course correct. Uh, but you know the editorial boards have been pretty hard on him, and you know. Uh, you know what? He does have time to course correct, but I wonder if he has the will. Because what you're describing is what I saw on the campaign trail. I um, co-moderated two different mayoral debates, and there was a pattern. He had his talking points, but if a question was asked that didn't fit into his talking points. He would just give campaign patter. And if somebody pushed him again and said, you know, like, you're not answering the question or this isn't what I asked, um, he would try it again. And if he couldn't get away with it, if the person followed up again, I hate to say this, but he resorted to race. You know, I saw him do it. It was the question was like the economy. And he looked at the audience and he said, well, you know, as a black man, you know, my experience, you know what I've been through. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell does this have to do with a question about a budget? Well, he, he turned, I, I moderated one of those debates, too, and, he, and he, I, I asked a question of him, and he turned it back on me, basically accusing me of racism. I, I asked – he has this, he had this grand plan to employ 20,000 youths in the city, 
uh, in the, during the summer, which I think he got two thousand out of that twenty thousand. But I asked him, um, I said, you know, how do you how are you going to get these these kids to be job ready? Because it's you know you, you can't just take someone who's never had a job and you know it's it's you, you, there are some job readiness skills and are, are there any plans for that? And and he came at me like his answer had something to do with basically that accusing me of saying that black and brown children are not ready for jobs and they're as ready as anybody and this is this a, a racially tinged question on my part. I was like, really? I mean, I just thought asking him, job readiness is a thing. The schools are interested in it everywhere in the suburbs and the city and we need plan to plan for that. And he didn't seem to be, be planning for it. So I, I had the same feeling. It's like that he, he would turn a lot of these questions into, into racial issues, into racial questions. And, and, you know, I, I know that the, the experience of a, of a black person is is different than ours, and it and it uh, and race. Oh, and, is and I'm not faulting that, but yeah. that I felt it, it was simply a, he was using it as a diversionary tactic. It was not that he, there was really there was each and every time I saw him do it, there was no real point to bringing race into the issue, and it wasn't like he could tell a personal story that explained why he wasn't going to answer this question or why he was answering the way it was. It, I felt it was just he was diverting the audience. He was trying to draw attention away from a question that he either didn't want to answer or didn't know how to answer. Well, yeah, one of my criticisms of him all along was that he, he seemed to have all these lofty plans, uh, a, a lot of which I think s- sounded good to me. But realistically, for instance, you know, g- getting the state to agree with his tax ideas, I mean, he's, we're doing this uh, Bring Chicago Home referendum because he can't get the General Assembly to agree to, uh, to, to this uh, graduated pro- uh, property tax transfer idea that he has. And I, and I was asking him, like, well, what's your plan B? You know, you, you, this doesn't come through. And you have you have you want to spend all this money, you want to invest in people and all this stuff. It all sounds good, but what's your plan B when it doesn't happen? When, when you when you run up against the fact that downstate legislators and Republican legislators aren't going to go along with your your plans, aren't going to just funnel money your way? What, what's your plan B? And, and it was like he'd never thought about the fact that he might not be able to get all the money that he wanted for his plans. And this was really before. Governor Abbott began shipping uh, you know, tens of thousands of people up to up to Chicago that he has to deal with. We all have to deal with. Uh, so, so he doesn't, you know, he he doesn't have a really good ability to see around corners. And I saw this with the Brighton Park tent encampment too, where you know they just decided they were going to do this, and there were all kinds of questions about the environment. But he didn't have to seem to have a plan if that didn't go through. Like, you, you always have to plan for contingencies, and he doesn't seem to be able to, like I say, to see around corners the way you would really want to have a. A mayor do that, but he's got three years to figure out this yeah. job. And, and I mean, I, I really, really wish him the best because the city depends on him doing well. And you know, the, and I live in the city, and I want I want the city to do, to do really well. So, Eric, thank you. It is always a pleasure. And for the first time, I feel like we were really able to get a good talk about a, a lot of what's in the Picayune Sentinel. I always feel like I have to rush you. No, no, let's wrap that up because there's five more things I want to talk to you about. So I was we so glad t- we were able to let we it breathe we today. Like, we didn't talk about that great Perry Como song in the Super Bowl. That I <laughs> so there's still we more also to talk didn't about. talk about the fact that I agree with you. You're not a senior citizen until you're at least 65. There we go. Thank uh-huh. you. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Eric Zorn, Picayune Sentinel. You should be subscribed to it because it's interesting, it's informative, and it's great fun. That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Perry Vasquez is up next. Uh, you will uh, hear Richard Chu tomorrow at 6 a.m., and then I will join you at 2 o'clock. Have a great evening, my friends. Good night. <laughs>